with almost every closer in Major League Baseball, or so it seems, now on the I.L., how should we manage our fantasy bullpens? I'll ask Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball and a writer at The Athletic, about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 7th. It's show number 22 of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball and a writer at The Athletic, discussing closers in the time of COVID, selling low, chasing relief wins, playing the percentages home field advantage, and his boons and banes. We'll also have our Market Watch Player News reports. Ray Murphy's doing double duty this week. Lightning hit Harold Nichols' house, and he's offline. So Ray will start with coverage of the National League, including Max Scherzer leaving a game, Will Smith returning to the Atlanta bullpen, two-star St. Louis players positive for COVID, and more. And then Ray continues with his regular report on news from the American League, including Joe Adele, Shohei Otani, Roberto Osuna, and some research on surprisingly productive years. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in Hey Taxi. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Dodgers second baseman Zach McKinstry. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about the short season's hopeless arithmetic. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? No new COVID cases in Major League Baseball, at least for now. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball and a writer at The Athletic. Gene, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a while. It's been a while, and it's great to be back, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, last time we spoke, I think it was in February, we were getting all excited about the uh, big season to come. I had an excellent conversation, as we always do, and uh, then boom, the whole thing just kind of collapsed. But uh, now that we've got the second season or the first season, second part, or whatever you're calling it, going, uh, how many teams are you running and how are they doing? Uh, I have five teams this year, and three of them are doing really well, and two of them are doing terribly. But the important ones are the uh, ones that are doing well. So my main event team is in first place in my league, and I'm in two cut line leagues, which I uh, really enjoy. And one of those is 10th out of 1,010. Wow. So... Yeah, and the other one is also, I think, at first place, or it was yesterday. So, uh, yeah, and then I have one team uh, that's doing absolutely terribly, but it's kind of good to have all my lousy picks on one team. Um, so I don't mind that. Um, if I if I keep on going the way I'm going, I'm going to be have a, have a good little season, let's call it. I was in one of those cut-down leagues, and they changed the rules partway through because of the short season, and they just said they're they're just going to play it like a straight NFBC-type draft where there's no cut-down because they thought the cut-down would be so short that it would make the entire process too random. Are your cut-down leagues still having cut-downs? 
Yeah, they had one right after the season started, and there's one more, I think, in the beginning of September. Um, so there were only two chances to manipulate your roster. And other than that, it's best ball format, which I really love. Um, and I also love the scoring system because I, people seem to treat it as if it's a regular roto league. But in fact, hitting is much more important than pitching. So it uh, there's a, a way to do it to uh, to draft a lot of closers and to be you know casual about your starting pitchers. Just make sure they're on good teams and it can get innings. But I there was no reason to draft a pitcher until like the tenth or eleventh round, and so I didn't, and that's working out well. I did exactly the same thing, Gene. This uh, the. Uh... Raz Slam League, it's called. That's the cutdown league I was referring to, and it's a it's a best ball points league. And I thought, uh, having discussed the matter with you and with uh, Michael Salfino, I thought that the uh, approach was to just absolutely load up on every hitter I could, especially multi position guys, so that the best ball system could find the the literally the best ball amongst all my hitters. And, and maximize my hitting points. And then I drafted a whole mess of closers, and we'll talk about closers later, but it didn't pan out for me because all my closers got hurt right away. Ah, uh, it's actually, it's working out for me. I think I have five closers on each team, and so far uh, one that has gone down on one and none on the other, so that's working out. The other thing about that format is is you draft for the spectacular, that, that is to say home run hitters, um, especially streaky guys, because, uh, you know, home runs do tend to come in bunches and you'll have guys who have just phenomenal weeks. And that's that is what's happened with me so far. Teoscar Hernandez, baby. I have Teoscar Hernandez. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The kind of guy you want. Right. Because if he's going to hit uh, he's going to hit home runs and and even if he doesn't do much else, the home runs are so overweighted in the scoring system that you just have to get after them as best you can. Uh, in, uh, do you have anything in common with the successful teams as far as uh, the players that uh, are on all of the rosters, including hitters? Uh, I don't think anybody's on all of my teams, but two guys. Um, Yastrzemski and Robinson Cano, two late picks who uh, who I didn't think should have been that late picks, although Cano, of course, just went on the DL. Um, but I, I, Yastrzemski is a, is a good hitter, and I don't think people gave him enough, um, enough credit because he was a late prospect. And you know how that goes, is that if a guy was not high on the prospect list and he comes on and does something, people tend not to believe in him, and Sometimes that's not right. I mean, it's it's happened historically in the past. A lot of Car- Matt Carpenter was a guy like that. You know, yes. I mean, nobody took him seriously. Um, but I mean, you look at Yastrzemski, He's fundamentally sound, and he's a he's got power. He hits lefties. He's uh, got extra games in Coors Field in the season. So he was like a a prize to me. What has stood out for you about this short season so far? We haven't seen much of it because of all of the COVID-related uh, playing time suspensions and what have you. But uh, when you look at the season so far, has anything surprised you? Has anything gone exactly as you expected? No. The, do you know, realize that the Major League batting average is two thirty-two? I did not. That is amazing to me. I mean, it's, you know, it's almost 20 points down from last year. Um I mean, in my day, in my day, in my day. a 232 batting average 
uh, got you sent to the minor leagues. So now the whole league is hitting 232. It's astounding to me. Um, but here we are. Do you think that's likely to come up as things normalize? Because I, I know that there's a lot of a lot of good hitters. I have Christian Yelich, and uh, uh, Christian Yelich is off to like an 077 start, and we really have to believe that he's not going to stay at 077 for the whole year. Is it likely that the 232 is a, a, just an anomaly, or do you think that there's enough uh, at-bats in, into the stat now that uh, it's going to be quite a, if not 232, it'll be down quite a bit when, uh, when the season wraps yeah. up? Exactly. I think it's going to go up, um, but we've got 11,256 Major League plate appearances. So I think that that's enough to show that something is going on. And yeah, I mean, I would be shocked if it didn't get back up to, say, 240. But still, that's a big drop from last year. Um, Strikeouts are up again. Um, walks are also up, which actually makes perfect sense to me because you figure that pitchers are going to be having control trouble with the lack of a ramp up to the season. Um, but yeah, the batting average thing is the real shocker to me. And the walks being up didn't surprise me either when I looked at it earlier this week because, uh, and I don't know where I read this, it might have been in your column on The Athletic, but drawing attention to the fact of there's a lot more bad pitchers because of the expanded rosters, and we're seeing a lot more of those sort of borderline pitchers who would be AAA fodder or quad A type uh, pitchers who wouldn't be on a roster that much, but they are because of the uh, short uh, preseason training period that they had, they had to have more pitchers, and and the pitchers who get added by definition are going to be the worst ones that they have to add. Right, that's true. Now you might respond that the same thing is happening with the hitters, and I think it is to a certain extent, especially with all the, you know, all the players that are out um, with sickness and you know and COVID and plus the normal injuries which are always high, uh, but I still think that that tends to favor hitters over pitchers um we'll see i guess i guess we'll see and uh are you playing a lot of dfs this season um yes and i've not been doing that well in it i've only had a couple of good nights so far um i don't know why um i guess we'll have to see uh see if it if it continues but of course things like this always happen in dfs i mean you you tend to run hot and cold and uh, so maybe it'll change or maybe there's something wrong with my with my approach. I don't know. I hope not. Well, speaking of your approach, when you were considering how you were going to approach DFS this year, did the short season uh, usage pattern changes of the big league clubs affect your analysis and how you were going about building your DFS rosters? Yeah, because the first thing is the trying to figure out how long the starting pitcher that you're taking is going to go. And on some slates, it has not appeared that any of the pitchers were going to go for very long. Um, so if you know if a guy's only going five innings, um, well, he can still get a win. But if he's going less than five innings, A, he can't get a win. B, he's going to be severely limited in the number of strikeouts he can get. So that makes it a little more uh, advantageous, I think, to to take a cheaper pitcher or to take the dominant pitcher who who is on that slate. But a lot of slates have not had a really dominant pitcher. And therefore, I've been going a little cheaper on the pitching than I usually have. And maybe that's why I've been screwing up. 
Well, it certainly adds to the variability if if all you can see on your slate uh, to choose from is a bunch of pitches you'd probably rather not have under normal circumstances, but the rules force you to pick one, and uh, the natural variability of shorter of shorter outings naturally leads to a greater variability of outcomes, I should think. Yeah, I think so, too. And in DraftKings, you have to pick two pitchers, and I have, I've been doing better on FanDuel than DraftKings, and that's probably why. The... Um, you know, it's relative. Mediocrity is better than bad. Um, if everybody's mediocre, then the best mediocre guy is the guy who's going to win that particular night. Every night's a different game. So so it's definitely a factor. To me, it's really hard to pick out out of a bunch of sub-mediocrities which one is going to actually be mediocre that night. That's really hard to do, I think. Well, yeah, because it's inherently unpredictable. Exactly. Yeah. There's no, there's no real form that you can go by. It's just a question of, you know, uh, who's with who. And I think a, a case like that is, is, uh, where I like to use the umpires to, um, sometimes be the deciding factor. If, if I've got a pitcher's umpire, then, uh, then I go with him, but you don't know that in the first game of a series, you don't know who the umpire is going to be until, until the first game of the series has been played. And the umpires have actually been moving around. I got burned doing it once because the umpire, uh, for some reason, left the crew and was substituted by another bad umpire, and that blew that day for me. What's a bad umpire, one who goes against your expectations? No, a bad umpire is an umpire who's got a high rate of missed balls and strike calls. Laz Diaz. Last years, yeah. Uh, where do you get your umpire data? I'm not allowed to tell you. Oh, really? Because it, yeah, it came confidentially to me, and uh, you know, and I think that this is a mild scandal in our scandal-ridden world. Um, you know, a few years ago, this data was available, and there's no reason why it shouldn't be. I mean, when a when Yelich is hitting 079, it's out there for everybody to see, right? So why shouldn't the umpire? Why? What makes them above scrutiny? Um, they should be out there. This data should be out there. It should be made public. I can remember downloading the entire season's worth of StatCast data a few years ago, and the umpire information was in there, and including whether they got balls and strikes called right because it's a pitch-by-pitch thing, and you could see a ball that was thrown inside the strike zone, one through nine, in the in the pitching zones that they use. That's a strike. Not swung at, called a ball, or or outside of that zone and called a strike. It was you could find out that information, and you're right. It is completely wrong that they don't share that information because I mean, if you've got it, then we know that there are sharps out there who are gambling or playing DFS or what have you who also have access to the information, and it is a pretty significant advantage over the rest of us who don't have access to that information and can't use it to to construct our rosters or to make our plans or whatever the case might be. Have you ever found out why they, they used to have it and no longer do? Um, well, somebody told me that they didn't want to embarrass the umpires. Um, I don't know that that's true. I mean, it is the most, it's the Occam's razor explanation. Um, but I don't know that for a fact. So, uh, I mean, I would, that's probably what it is. Um, but again, I mean, I, I think it's ridiculous, and uh, and they should make that that information public. And you're right; it is definitely unfair that I have that information and that you don't. 
Um, it's outrageous. It, it is outrageous. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball, writer for The Athletic. And Gene, your most recent fantasy baseball article in The Athletic was titled uh, Stock Watch, A Dearth of Steals, The Art of Selling Your Slumpers, and More. Let's start with this idea of selling your slumpers. Uh, you started that section by simply saying, sell low. And this seems to me to fly in the face of all the fantasy advice uh, that we've received since Abner Doubleday first went into a La Rotisserie restaurant and invented DFS. <laughs> I, I, might have, I might have some of those details wrong. Yes. <laughs> Why should we all of a sudden start selling when the market is at the bottom? Well, you know, of course you always want to buy low and you always want to sell high, but um, it's better to get something than to get nothing. And in a short season like this, I think that there's much more, the odds clearly favor selling low. That's to say less than a hundred cents on the dollar. First of all, once a guy's on your roster, it doesn't matter what you paid for him. It's what he's doing for you in that roster slot. But beyond that, um, there's always the possibility that your slumping hitter is hurt and you haven't heard about it. There's also the possibility that the league has caught up to him to a certain, in one aspect or another. And of course, they're going to keep doing that until he makes his adjustment. Is there enough time to make the adjustment in this shortened season? And finally, people just go into slumps. And especially the high strikeout, high fly ball hitters, their slumps are often sustained slumps. Um, so there may not be enough time and two months I mean, many of such a slump has lasted more than a year. So two months may well not be enough time to, to rebound, to get it out. And against that, there's the possibility, of course, that your slump will breaks out tomorrow. But I think that if you add up those odds, you should definitely sell low. Get something that you need. You know, I, I mentioned in the article the absurdity of you might want to trade Mike Trout for Tommy Pham. Now, that's not that's a reductio ad absurdum, but you may want well want to trade Trey Turner for Tommy Pham or JD Martinez um, based on what this, these guys are going to give you from now on. Cause that's all that matters. Now, obviously we're not talking about keeper leagues here. We're talking about single seasons, but it doesn't matter what you paid for him. It matters what he's going to give you from now on. That's my point. And if you, to get something, even if you're selling less than the market value, you can still win doing that, and that's what I advocate in this short season. I think it's also true in the long season, frankly, uh, because I, I think the hardest lesson that fantasy baseball players, fantasy sports players in general have to learn is that the moment that gavel drops on the last auctioned player, those players' salaries or those players' rounds are meaningless. They have no meaning from that point on. But a lot of people who are considering making trades in fantasy leagues still believe that they have to look at what they paid and get back an equivalent amount in what that guy paid for the player that he's willing to offer. And the two things are completely unrelated as far as I'm concerned. And you have, now you have to look at, as you said, what's going to happen next, not what did I pay for this guy because what you had to pay is irrelevant exactly and furthermore when you make trades like this you can make 
instead of making one for ones, make two for twos, where you get the better deal on the other end of it. So you, it looks like you're selling low, but you're really not. And then you're definitely doing better on the second, you know, on the, on the second player in the trade. And people do think that way. People do retain their, their market value assessments during the season. And as we know, many times you shouldn't. Uh, I don't think you ever should, frankly. Uh, I mean, I, I believe that you can exploit the perception caused by a $40 salary or a $30 salary when you're negotiating for a guy who got a $20 salary because so many people will focus on that and not on the fact that the $40 guy is stinking the joint out and the $20 guy appears to be having a terrific season. You can take advantage of that in, in a way that almost seems unfair, actually. It's, 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 a, it's an interesting thing to try to do. And then the, the wrinkle of throwing in the second guy and making, you know, a $10 guy for his $10 guy for your $6 guy can actually be the icing on the cake. And if you happen to catch his, his low guy that he's willing to give up, on the uh, because that guy's slumping as well, and he wants to get rid of him and take a chance on your guy. You can really uh, double your double your profit. I think uh, you saw, you also said stolen bases have become nearly on, non-existent outside of San Diego. Anyway, and before we get to the tactical response, give us the data that support the contention that stolen bases are no longer a thing. Well, you know, when I wrote that, it was last Thursday, and it was true. Um, but now it's the next following Wednesday, and it's not true anymore. Um, they stole a bunch of bases over the weekend to the point where stolen bases are where they were last year, or a tick, um, a tick even above from 1.3 per plate appearance to uh, 1.2. Um, so it's not true anymore. But it's still true that stolen bases are way down from what they used to be, you know, a few years ago. So that's kind of irrelevant now, and uh, I guess that's why we wait to make these judgments. Although I couldn't wait. I'm sorry. <laughs> In what seems like a related matter, you predicted earlier that runs would be up this year. They're about the same as well, but you're sticking to your guns. Uh, what is it about the run scoring environment that makes you think that uh, runs will be, at worst, the same as last year and perhaps even higher? Because of what we talked about before, the number, the increased number of marginal major league pitchers, um, and I do think that that's going to continue to be true, perhaps even more so as these double headers or these, I don't know, fake double headers pile up. Um, but still, I mean, the point is they're still going to be using a lot more pitchers, um, and those pitchers are by definition marginal major major leaguers, and therefore I am going to stick to my guns, but maintain an open mind and finally it's been a banner year for closers especially if you have any kind of uh, interest in a hospital uh, il stints have taken out so far this year and i'm counting covid guys in that aroldis chapman wade davis hunter harvey jordan hicks keone kayla jose leclerc scott oberg roberto osuna just the other day yoshihisa hirano ken giles and kyle crick and performance issues have cost uh, Craig Kimbrell, Hansel Robles, Kirby Yates, Sean Doolittle, Edwin Diaz. It seems like almost every closer that we went into the uh, March part of preseason thinking about acquiring has crashed and burned. How can a fantasy owner, Gene, manage relief pitching in general and try to find saves in particular? 
say your prayers. Uh, I mean, I don't know how else to answer you. One one thing that I'm doing is that I've been, and, and this is on my main event team. I only had one closer, um, and so I drafted a bunch of you know potential guys, and most of them are gone already um, in the bidding wars for the for the new closers. What I've been doing specifically is bidding about a third of my fab budget for each of the new guys, and I haven't gotten anybody yet. Um, which I think is interesting um, since everybody's in the same boat, obviously. Um, but I think that we have to exercise a, a combination of aggressiveness and just, and patience that, that maybe this week will be the guy because the way things are going, by the time we bid on Sunday, there's going to be two more guys. Um, and the same thing with the week after that. Now, once you get past next week, I think we, and you're still way down in saves. I think you're really in trouble. So I'd be even more aggressive um, this week. I would, I would bid whatever it takes to get a guy as long as he's a good pitcher and he's not on a terrible team. Um, and I think that's the best you can do. And then just let the chips fall where they may. I, I mean, I wish I had a a better answer, but um, that's what I'm doing. I think part of the part of the tactical response has to be try to be careful about the kind of guy you're signing up and spending a lot of fab on. As you said, uh, a lot of the fab money is getting spent now on pretty much whatever guy pops up, even for a couple of games, as somebody who seems to be getting the ball, and then two weeks later or two games later, he crashes and the manager says, okay, next, because the it strikes me that in a shortened season like this, where every game has such an effect on team's playoff chances, the managers have a much looser hand to simply say, I'm not going to just stick with the closer every night because he's the closer. I can't afford to let guys blow even two or three games because that that could be the margin between our team being in the playoffs and being out. And so you see a guy like Craig Kimbrell, for instance, ordinarily because he's got the reputation, he's got the long track record, you could see the Cubs maybe saying, oh, he'll work it out. They don't have that luxury. And so they they bring up this guy, Wick, and for a moment he looks okay. He went for a lot of money in a couple of my leagues. But I'm looking past him because I don't like the skills, and I see uh, Jeremy Jeffress behind that. And uh, I think Jeremy Jeffress is the guy who's got the skills in the group. Maybe that's where to go before he gets to that second spot, and especially before he gets to the ninth inning role. Yeah, and the other thing, yeah, that's a good approach. And the other thing is, is that if you get a guy who turns out to be part of a committee, which a lot of teams are going with this year, um, all is not lost. Because if that happens, the number of saves it's going to take to compete is going to go way down. And your guy, even though if he's not a true closer, even if he picks up you know five or six saves, that may be the difference between getting you into the into the middle of the pack or in the upper echelon of the middle of the pack, which I think is probably what we should hope for. You know, I mean, I, unless you get really lucky, you're not going to lead your league in saves this year. So play it by ear, do the best you can and try to, you know, get eight points in the category, even seven and maximize everything else. 
Are you as surprised as I am that of all the closers who have held on to their roles and not looked too bad doing it, Archie Bradley in Arizona has been pretty effective and, and has kind of calmed the waters out there, even though there are some pretty decent options behind him as well. Yeah, I mean, he's a guy that has always had some good runs. He's kind of up and down career, but a couple of years ago, he had a, an amazing first half or so and even more. And so I think he's got plenty of skill. And I think that, you know, we've talked about this before too, is that I basically think that any decent pitcher is going to get the saves as long as he gets the role, um, especially, you know, given the two and the three run lead. Um, so, but no, he doesn't, it doesn't surprise me. It never surprises me when anybody um, gets a lot of saves. Just remember Jim Johnson got 101 saves in two years. That to me ends all discussion of, quality of relievers as far as getting saves is concerned. I had him for the second year of those two, and I was mighty glad of it, but I hung on to him for the third year and turned out to be a hot-running disaster, uh, that's for sure. Now, Gene, a, a moment ago you mentioned these shortened doubleheaders. The uh, Major League Baseball and the MLBPA have agreed that any replacement game doubleheader that they're going to put together will be seven innings rather than nine, and there's going to be a lot of them. Uh, the, the Cardinals have missed seven or eight games in the last few uh, days uh, because of a COVID outbreak. Miami missed a bunch earlier this year. And you, you know that it's going to happen again and again because these guys are going to go to strip clubs. They are going to go to casinos and they don't seem to have any common sense about this topic. So what role or what effect do you think the seven inning games and the increasing number of seven inning games is going to have on save totals and on vulture win totals and on win totals in general. Well, I think that you're going to see a lot of closers going regular closers, getting two saves in one day um, with the teams with committees. You're not going to see that at all. So I think the, it's going to be all over the map. Um, you're going to see, uh, batters getting fewer at bats but then again when they they'll get the pinch hit in the second game with runners on second and third so it may make no difference to me it just it just exponentially increases the role of luck in uh, in this season so uh, other than maximizing opportunities which is really hard to do i i don't see how what we can do to to play it just you know, get the best players and let the chips fall is is a terrible advice, but what else can I say? What else can you say, indeed? Uh, you had an article, Gene, at The Athletic about not just chasing wins, but chasing relief wins in particular. We've been talking about saves. Uh, before we talk about some of your player picks in that particular article, why chase wins at all, Gene? Isn't it a well-established fact that chasing wins is a mugs game? Well, yeah, I mean, in a way, um, but on the other hand, when in doubt, take the guy on the better team. Um, I don't think that's irrational chasing. I mean, the statement came about because of the fact that wins, as we know, are not a justice stat, let's put it that way. Um, but we can still take advantage of it, and there's still a category. So, I mean, to a certain extent, we have to chase wins. Um, and the best way to do that is to take the, you know, when two pitchers are the same quality in your draft or your auction, you know, bid the extra buck on the guy that's on the better team. Um, that to me is, and the guy is pitching more innings. 
Um, now, especially in these days where starters aren't going five innings, it makes more sense to look at the relievers who have established that they can pitch more than one inning. Um, now, there's a lot of semi-starters that that applies to, and those guys are obviously worth owning if they're good pitchers. As far as straight relievers are concerned, once they've established that they can pitch multiple innings, any guy who finishes two innings in a close game has a decent shot at a win, and I think that we have to pay extra attention to those guys this year. And who knows, they may even get a save at some point. What effect, Gene, did the change in relief pitching rules, the minimum three batters faced or reaching the end of an inning, how did those rule changes about relief pitching affect your thinking on this matter and on relief pitching in general? Other than the fact that good um, left-handed specialists have a little more appeal, I don't think there is that much of, that much of a difference. The key, as I said, is to, is to finish more than one inning. Um, as far as getting wins is concerned. Um, other than that, I do like the rule, though, because it uh, it forces um, uh, more challenge situations. And that's what sports should be. I, you know, me against you, you know, batter against pitcher, um, lefty against the righty, righty against the lefty that he has to face him. And that's, I think that's to the good of the game. Yeah, I kind of felt the same way, and I when I first looked at it, I thought, you know, the, it seems like there's going to be a bit of an offset here that, you know, some of the relief pitchers are going to get more batters faced because of the three-batter rule, especially left-handed specialists will find out if they can get right-handed hitters out, and if they can, then they'll have uh, get more batters faced, which is more strikeouts, more inning-ending sort of opportunities so that there's win-and-save opportunities there. But I think at the same time that a lot of that benefit might be offset by the fact that there are just more pitchers available with the 30-man roster, which now I hear they're talking about maybe extending farther into the season, perhaps all the way to the end because of all the injuries. And so if you were kind of hoping that you had your eye on a left-handed reliever who could really get some some work, uh, might be offset by the fact that they've got other choices, way more other choices than they would have had otherwise. Yeah, and also, you know, most left-handed specialists still face just as many or more right-handed batters because the only lefties they face are the really good lefty hitters. Otherwise, they pinch hit for them. So, you know, it, it was kind of a moot point, and, and I just like to see, uh, yeah, a little more challenge. And it, as far as I'm concerned, I can't stand watching all the pitching changes. So, um, you know, as much of a purist as I am, uh, this is one change that I think is for the better. Well, you had a list of relievers to consider, and it starts in Oakland with the venerable veteran Yusmero Petit. And uh, I, I love having this guy on rosters, even in, even in only leagues, even in uh, leagues where you'd rather have saves. But this guy has been money in the bank for as long as I can remember. And usually a 27th round pick or a $1 pick at the end of auctions. He's just been terrific. Uh, what's your thinking on Yusmero Petit? Well, he's a good pitcher. Um, he's, a, the, you know, the extreme fly baller. Uh, can't have a better ballpark to pitch in than with all that foul territory. Um, he doesn't walk anybody. He pitches multiple innings. He's the perfect guy. Um, Stamen on San Diego. Um, anybody on the Yankees or the Dodgers 
who shows more than one, you know, the thing to look at is a good team and a reliever who's pitching more than one inning per appearance. And, uh, you know, and then after that, as Scott Pianaski always said, you know, look early in the season for the guy who's got 10 strikeouts and one walk. And if he's pitching more than one inning, bid, bid for him. He's a good guy to get. He'll help you one, you know, hooker by crook. He'll help you. Anybody else jump out at you as the kind of pitcher we should be looking at in this regard? Well, I was going to say Daniel Ponce de Leon, but he's now in the rotation. So, um, yeah, I mean, I would look at these semi-starters, Jalen Beeks, um, who got hit the other day um, on on Tampa Bay, is a, is another guy who I think that uh, that will pay off in that role. But the semi-starters also. Uh, in the article, you mentioned Jonathan Loezaga of the Yankees. He seems to have maybe made a step up with the uh, t- Tommy Canely news. Yeah, um, I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, this is this is why you have to watch, uh, you know, see what the managers are doing, and you got to look at the box scores every day. Um, I mentioned Alex Young on Arizona in, in the article, and he he was pretty good this year. I I, I haven't seen him yet this year, so I don't know. Uh, I don't want to unequivocally recommend him, but he's definitely a possibility. And finally, Gene, uh, you said there are some teams where there might be too much manager jiggery-pokery going on to focus on any particular reliever because it's just going to be too hard to predict who's going to get the ball and in what circumstances. Can, do you have any examples of teams like that where it's just hands-off? Well, yeah, Texas, where all these teams are now going to a closer by committee. Um, it looks like the Cubs might be doing that. Uh, and uh, don't be surprised if four more other teams do it. Um, so that's why I said, don't lose heart. If you think that you got the wrong guy, uh, because he probably still is going to get saves and you're probably going to require fewer saves. Um, the other, other than that, I would just look to the schedule and uh, there's going to be teams that have nine game weeks, maybe even 10 game weeks. Um, so, I mean, that's something that you have to be aware of when you're making your fab bidding. And that, that's about the best you can do as far because we can't get inside these guys' heads. Um, so we just have to look and, and, and bid based on opportunity and quality of pitcher. Gene McCaffrey is the wise guy of fantasy baseball and a writer at The Athletic, and he'll be back in just a few minutes. Coming up, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League. It's Ray Murphy on the way next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show, and I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the speculator column, analyst Ryan Bloomfield makes some early snap judgments on the 2020 season. In daily call-ups, our crack Baseball HQ Miners team looks at all the week's call-ups, including San Diego right-hander Luis Patino, Miami outfielder Monty Harrison and right-hander Jorge Guzman, Oakland right-hander James Caprillian, Angels outfielder Joe Adele, and a dozen other call-ups. And in playing time tomorrow, analyst Dan Marcus digs into the National League Central, starting, of course, with the spread of COVID-19 in the Cardinals roster, as well as early strains on the bullpens in Milwaukee and Cincinnati, and more National League Central coverage. 
And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse and injury analysis in the Big Hurt. As well, we have tools like the player projections updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. Expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're all why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy standing by with news from the American League. And leading off, it's Ray Murphy and the National League Report. Ray Murphy, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks, PD. We've made it through another week of the season. It's all good, right? Well, I don't know if it's all good, but we, uh, we are kind of scraping along. I have six St. Louis Cardinals. And uh, on t- on two different teams, some of them on multiple teams, of course. And uh, uh, I just lost all those games when the uh, the whole team came up uh, positive for enough, or a lot of them came up positive, and I lost uh, two series in a row. So I had one week where literally like a third of my offensive roster wasn't playing, and the league rules don't allow you to make those switches midweek. So I was kind of, you know, I had to make a call on the weekend say because uh, they were saying they might not play they might not play they might lose friday but have a double hitter sunday and so i gambled because what are you going to do you know you're going to replace paul goldschmidt with some waiver guy and uh of course they ended up not playing at all i don't think they're playing till friday of uh of this week if at all so yeah it's been it's been pretty tough yeah i'm hoping they play this weekend too and uh in all the fab chaos of trying to replace all those guys this weekend i covered all of my you know, as many of my Cardinals and Tigers as I could and was guessing as which Marlins were coming back and all that stuff. And I thought it had it all, I had it all done right, and then I found in one league I forgot to cut Yohan Assessment as for somebody who was actually, you know, playing. So, yeah. Fall through the cracks in this chaos. They do, and it, and it, uh, I know some, I know some people I've been following on Twitter, they say this adds to the excitement, it challenges your baseball acumen more to look through the sort of scrubs at the end of the, of the waiver wire and the free, uh, free agent pool. Other people, uh, the side that I'm on is this is just frustrating, you know, because it was bad enough that you put a roster together not really knowing what's going on. And and now, you know, every week you just don't know if you're going to lose some players off your roster, which players off your roster. Wholesale, you know, we all we all deal with injuries in our fantasy careers over time and we do, we do what we have to do. But now you're losing six, seven, eight guys at a time. It's, I don't know, it, to me it's not fun, <laughs> put it that way. It's, you know, I think I will revise my answer from before the season started. I was like, well, how bad can it be? It's going to be better than nothing. And yes, it's better than nothing, but it's not as, it's not as much better than nothing as I was hoping, you know. Ray, let's start our National League coverage in Washington, where the Nationals pulled starter Max Scherzer from his start on Wednesday with what they called later a strained hamstring. Uh, Phil Hertz covered the story for Baseball HQ's playing time today. How long do Max Scherzer's owners have to hold their collective breath? Uh, I think until they see actually see him on a mound again for more than one inning at a time. I, you know, obviously not good news for anybody who built their staff around Scherzer as their ace. The you know still first round thirty dollar plus talent here, 
But, you know, as we sort of thought even back in March, uh, he's 36 now and maybe not the workhorse he used to be, you know, thinking back to last season and even the, you know, the hiccup that pushed him back to a couple of games in the World Series, the back strain that bothered him sort of off and on all last season. You know, I don't need to tell you, Patrick, these are the aches and pains of the uh, of somebody in their late 30s and, and beyond, right? Yeah, you're certainly right about that. Uh, as you were going through your list, I thought, hey, I could be a major league pitcher. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, back to the specific question, how long do people have to wait? He, Scherzer's minimizing this, which is what you want to hear. But on the other hand, he's minimized some of those aforementioned problems in the past, too. So... Best case scenario, he pops up on a mound again on Monday or Tuesday, whenever the uh, his turn in the rotation comes up again. But I think that uh, I'm, I'm going to need to uh, see it before I believe it, I think is probably the best way to put it. It was a pretty tough first inning, though, Ray. Oh, yeah. I mean, what did he do? Uh, five batters, a hit and a walk, uh, and then... 27 pitches, only half of them for strikes. That just sounds like not the Max Scherzer we know, right? And I guess he said after the game that, uh, you know, it was during his warm-ups or during some some outfield running that, uh, that, that, that he tweaked it and tried to just power through it. But obviously that wasn't working out. And as you mentioned, he did say he doesn't think it was that big of a deal. He fully expects to get back on the mound right in the turn of his rotation. But we've seen uh, throughout baseball, because of the canceled games and little injuries and these kind of things, that a lot of starting pitchers are getting off their five-day rotations for one reason or another. And some people are saying this may be a reason that these starting pitchers are having injury trouble because they do get into that five-day habit. They get into that five-day cycle where they know exactly what they've got to do, and all of a sudden it's a six-day cycle, or it's an eight-day cycle. And I'm not just talking about Max Scherzer here, but I think this is something that we as fantasy owners, but especially major league teams, are going to have to figure out, especially with their top pitchers. Maybe it's got to be five days no matter what, and if everybody else has to miss their turn, so be it. Yeah, these guys are creatures of habit, and they thrive on routine, especially somebody, you know, a veteran like Scherzer who's been you know, living the same day one, day two, day three, four, five routine for, you know, what, 10, 15 years now. Um, I pulled up the Nats schedule and they do not have an off day coming out of this weekend. They, uh, they're playing, uh, you know, they're home for the Orioles this weekend. And then they go up to play the Mets early in the week. And they do play the Mets Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So it's not going to be as simple as giving him an extra day if they need to. But to your point, if, you know, if he's good to go and he'll be back on a regular four days of rest and he gets, this really is a minor deal, then maybe this is a chance for him to get some positive momentum going forward. But back to your hint at the top, uh, going to be nothing but a couple of days of holding, holding uh, breath if you're a Scherzer owner and probably refreshing the news frantically on Monday afternoon, trying to decide whether to put him in your lineup or not. And the last thing fantasy baseball needs after all the pitching injuries so far is a Max Scherzer injury. Of course, the Nationals already lost Steven Strasburg, and there's been a host of other pitchers in both leagues, especially closers, and we'll talk more about them in a second. In Atlanta, however, some good news. Reliever Will Smith was activated from the IL, and I assume he's going to step right back into a critical role in the Atlanta bullpen. Uh, Phil Hertz covered this story for Playing Time today. I'm a Mark Melanson owner, Ray, and I wonder if good news for Will Smith is bad news for me. What does this mean for closer Mark Melanson? 
I don't think you should be that worried just yet. Melanson has been looking just fine in the closer role while we were waiting for Smith to, to to get back here. He's thrown, I think we're up to four scoreless innings now. And, you know, in typical Melanson fashion, he's not dominating. I think it's a walk and two strikeouts. But he's converted both of his save ops, hasn't allowed a run yet, a whip uh, well below one. No question, Smith is the more highly skilled pitcher, and that's why he got the massive massive for a reliever contract from the uh, Braves this offseason. But there was intrigue all the way back to right when he signed as to whether he was going to be the closer or whether they would use him in a high leverage role and let Melanson stick to the ninth. I mean, you can go back past just the, the two weeks here that Melanson's been good. I think I read earlier this week that since the trade deadline last year, he has actually not blown a save as a Brave. So I think he's got a little more rope there. I don't think you have to be too, too worried until he hits a speed bump. And it did look like uh, at one point that the uh, Atlanta club was amassing good relief pitchers uh, in addition to to Melanson and uh, picking up Will Smith this year. But late last year, they grabbed Shane Green in a trade, and people were wondering whether that would uh, result in Mark Melanson losing his job, and it didn't. They seem to be pretty comfortable with Mark Melanson for whatever reason. And as we know, a huge part of whether guys get save opportunities is whether their managers trust them with save opportunities. That's right. And this may be a case where they trust him and they like giving you know, the ground ball guy. They like giving him the, you know, the clean inning to start the ninth and they will use anyone from Smith to Chris Martin to Luke Jackson through, you know, down the line. All of those guys have closing experience in one place or another. And, but they're going to, they're going to mix and match those guys, but have a, you know, sort of a defined back end in Melanson. And I think we can, say with some confidence now that his it's his job until he gives the club a reason to reconsider. In the meantime, uh, Will Smith is not going to be without value. He's likely to see a lot of high leverage work in Atlanta, which would mean we expect him to come in and have some opportunities to get some vulture wins, maybe a two-inning save here and there. And meanwhile, he's going to provide those exceptional ratios that have kind of been his watchword. That's exactly right. I I've noticed in the box scores a few times in the last couple of weeks that AJ Minter is back from the uh, from exile and had been sort of holding down the role that I think is going to just going to get handed to Smith here to be that lefty leverage guy in the late innings. It's not that he's a you know has to face lefties only guy. Smith is much better than that, uh, but uh, I think the uh, Snicker is a one of the better mix and match guys with his bullpen and will use resources appropriately. And as you say, that may very well mean that Smith gets a save when there are a couple of lefties due up or they like the matchup for him in the place in the order better than they do with Melanson. This, you know, I don't think Melanson's in a set it and forget it role. I think he's going to get most of the saves, but Smith will work important innings. He'll pick up wins. He'll get those two winning outings like you're talking about, or, you know, get the last out of the eighth in a tie game and hope the Braves take the lead so he can get the win, that sort of thing. It's uh, good teams need more than one good reliever, and that's the situation the Braves find themselves in here. And it's an admirable situation to be in. Not so good of news in Atlanta. Second baseman Ozzie Albies was placed on the 10-day injured list with a right wrist contusion. That was on Wednesday. Phil Hertz covers Atlanta for playing time today again. Uh, what happened here? Yeah, so he's just dinged up, and it seems like it's actually been lingering for a while. Uh, he's He's been 
really struggling at the plate in the uh, in the short season here. I think he was two for 21 before he went into DL, something like that, uh, four for 29, I think it was actually. It's, so he's clearly not hitting. He wasn't running, which isn't necessarily a direct relation to the wrist, but more of a relation to when you've only got four hits, you're not getting on base enough to run with regularity. So this is, you know, it was pretty clear over the 10 days or so that this was not the Ozzy Albies we were hoping for with a, uh, you know, in terms of output at the plate. So clearly the Braves have decided to shut him down and hope that giving a bruise 10 days off is enough to uh, sort of let him reboot and come back on the other side. If it is only a bruise, I guess that's the next thing. I imagine there'll be some more uh, deep diagnostics going on with him as well. And as far as the stolen base thing, I wonder if this is going to be a lingering problem. Even if he comes back with his wrist in good enough shape to hit, the team might not be that crazy about him diving into second base with his hands forward because we've seen players in the past, Ray, hurt themselves, get the, get wrist trouble. I think Mike Trout hurt his wrist one time, uh, barreling in with all that uh, momentum into second base. And then your wrists are relatively small as far as bones go. And wham, you slam into this brick wall of a, of a, of a base with all of that momentum. It's a lot of stress on a, on what could be a tender kind of thing. The, the, uh, Atlanta might just say, look, we're glad to have you back. No stealing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And th- there are a couple of layers to that. Everything you say about the risk of a wrist in terms of sliding, you know, particularly head first, is spot on. It reminds me of the discussions we were having in the offseason and last year about Alberto Mondesi and his shoulder, you know, different different part of the arm, but the same principle as far as the dive and, you know, especially for the wrist, if it's a contusion being exposed to slap tags or, you know, balls that don't completely get caught, you know, there's a lot that can go wrong there. The other thing that's interesting about it is even when, before they put Albies on the DL, it seemed like he got sort of a quick hook from the top of the lineup. You know, he wasn't hitting, as we said, and Dansby Swanson was, and they pretty quickly made a switch and, Swanson was getting some cameos up in the two spot. And if they do decide that Albies is, as you say, shouldn't be stealing when he comes back, even if the bat gets going, I almost wonder if they'll stick with that adjustment in the lineup and put Albies back down more in the middle and try to make him more of a run producer than a table setter if the bat is more back to normal than the running game is. So who's going to get the playing time while Albies is out? Uh, it looks like Charlie Culberson and Adani Hechevarria, uh, which if you're in a Scrabble league is fantastic. Other, uh, if Scrabble, if, uh, Scrabble points are not a category, it may not be all that exciting for you. These two guys are, I don't want to say interchangeable, but they're sort of cut from the same cloth. And if you squint, there's enough here that maybe if one of them was the full-time replacement for a couple of weeks, you can extract some value. But if they're really going to job share, then I'm not sure there's enough of an opportunity for either one of them. Uh, Culbertson is a you know, career utility guy. He's never had more than – he's never cracked 300 at-bats in a season. Uh, last year he had 259, but only a 4% walk rate, 67% contact. Striking out a third of the time with barely league average power isn't great. I mean, he did hit five home runs in that small – Sample size of 130 at bats last year, a career high of 12. I, you know, like I said, in a fill in, in a, for a fill in, in a deep league, if he was getting every day at bats for a couple of weeks, you'd at least take the RBIs and runs in a decent lineup. But that's about the extent of it. 
Hechevria is not much different. Um, you know, came up as a defensive specialist with the Marlins, and you know, was a glove first guy. And the bats sort of come along a little bit over time. He's never been an on base guy. His on base percentage for his career is two ninety, but he's moved off a shortstop into more of a utility role to try to, you know, try to extend his career basically. And the pop has developed a little bit here. Well, as well, nine home runs last year. Slug of four forty three. I mean, that, that was respectable in the in the juiced ball year, but again, kind of sortable play, sort of playable in NL only if the bats were there. If he was getting twenty at bats a week for the next week or two, but if both of these guys are getting twelve at bats, yeah, <laughs> yeah, well said. Uh, it's the kind of analysis <laughs> you pay good money for at Baseball HQ. <laughs> uh, both Hetcheveria and Culberson are right-handed hitters. They're both better versus left-handers, as we expect. They're equally bad versus right-handers. There's no platoon edge here. There's really no edge for either of these guys here. I don't know that either of them is really pickupable right now because we, you just as you said, Ray, there's not going to be enough playing time if they're splitting it. I know Johan Camargo also played a little second base in the big leagues. Any chance that he steps up and they shuffle things around? I mean, when you look at the depth chart for this team, I, that's the same thought I had. The problem is it looks like it's just papered over one problem to start to solve another. I mean, Camargo defensively, I think he can handle second. He's played there about 100 innings for his career. He's already played uh, four or five games for the Braves since, since he came to Atlanta. And the bat's better for sure. I mean, there's a $18 season in his not-so-distant past in 2018 when he had 19 home runs and OPS over 800 in 464 at-bats. Last year, it crashed back to zero. But if we, even if we give him credit for owning those 2018 skills, the problem there on this roster is that you know he's sort of job-sharing third base with Austin Riley right now. And if they move him over to second, then Riley becomes the everyday third baseman in – He's hitting 129 with two home runs. So I'm not sure that is improving anything. So if Riley was, you know, sticking a claim to to more playing time, then I could I could more see this. But if Riley's flailing, flailing away and striking out 42% of his at bats like he is, I'm I'm not sure that moving Camargo actually does anything but push the problem from second base to third base. Moving along, Ray, the closer go-round has had a pretty wild spin of late in Pittsburgh, and it just got a little wilder. A newly anointed closer, Nick Birdie, got the job and immediately went on the DL, I always want to call it. On the IL, he's got unspecified elbow issues. Uh, Rick Green is covering this story. Ray, should we expect a recall of Kent to Colby anytime soon? I, if I were Kent Tocovi, I might be sitting by the phone. Things are pretty bleak in uh, in this bullpen. Tocovi must be uh, must be in his seventies right now, but I'm not so sure he if he can still get people out from the uh, from throwing the submarine ball. He might get a call. <laughs> By well, 73 years old, uh, this bullpen was supposed to have Keone Kayla, Kyle Crick, Michael Feliz, Birdie, of course, and Richard Rodriguez. Birdie, as I said, got the role, but now they're just down to Rodriguez, and maybe uh, Kayla's coming back. What are the chances of that? Yeah, Kayla, this bullpen was supposed to be the strength of this team, but as you say, it's been uh, nothing but attrition so far. Uh, Rodriguez probably becomes the guy by default until uh, Kayla is ready. Kayla missed July camp due to uh, quarantine slash COVID issues, and is back in camp now and throwing uh, is medically cleared 
but I don't believe he's faced live batters yet. I think he's just been throwing bullpens and now needs to get into inter-squad games or scrimmages or controlled workouts or whatever we're calling them in the uh, these mythical alternate campsites. So you even for a one-inning reliever, you would think he's got to do that for you know at least a couple of outings or every other day for five days or something like that before you think about throwing into him into a big league game. So, you know, I would swag that he is still at least a week away. Uh, Derek Shelton said he will get the ninth inning back when he gets, to, when he, when he comes back, which, you know, given everybody else's, you know, disappeared from this bullpen is hardly a significant pronouncement. Of course, he'll get the ninth inning back. Uh, so there are some saves to be projected there, but you know, this is still a bad team and there aren't a ton of saves to be had. So, you know, hard to get. I don't know if Kila got cut in some leagues. I'd certainly be picking him up if you need saves, but that's, uh, you know, a tepid recommendation in terms of uh, I don't think he's going to flip many save categories with, uh, you know, five saves in five weeks down the stretch or something along those lines. Yeah, Baseball HQ has research showing that saves are awarded in roughly half a team's wins, and half of all Pittsburgh's wins this year isn't likely to amount to many. They're 3-10 and 10 so far. If you prorate it out to 60 games, it's 10 more wins. You figure five more saves. But I would say that five saves in a shortened year, the way the categories are bunched, five saves is not valueless. You know, it could be a, a five saves, five points kind of situation in a lot of leagues. So it's it's certainly something in your league to look at if you expect that saves are going to be tough or if you have an opportunity to jump over the bunch with four or five saves. Ordinarily, Keona Kayla, not that interesting of a, of a guy. But like I said, four or five saves makes a difference. Could be something there. Uh, St. Louis made quite a media splash with a bunch of players and staff getting positive tests for COVID. We have an update on that uh, as well. I understand Phil Hertz is on the story for playing time today. Uh, let's start with the news. Uh, they're canceling more games. Yeah, the news here on Friday appears to be you know, just breaking before we hit the record button here, PD, that tonight's game for the Cardinals is postponed due to more positive tests uh, it may just be tonight. They haven't ruled out the whole weekend yet, but clearly uh, the outbreak in, St. Louis, uh, in, in the uh, Cardinals clubhouse here has uh, not fully run its course. So Phil had you know, taken us dive into all of the myriad playing time ripples here, and it sounds like he's going to have a couple more. We don't know who the latest positive tests are, but it's, uh, you know, there's a, even, well, even the ones we know about are a significant impact here. And we do not know the new COVID victims, but we do know that a couple of big names have already been uh, identified with their consent, as I understand the rules in Major League Baseball. Uh, the first one, shortstop Paul DeYoung. I have Paul DeYoung in a couple of rosters. This is bad news for anybody who has Paul DeYoung. What are the ramifications? Yeah, so he's been declared or disclosed, I should say, as one of the positive tests and obviously terrible for everyone in that organization and him in particular and those who have tested positive. The thing is, we still don't know who the mild to serious symptoms are um, and how long it's going to take to get the positive test, the uh, negative test results to get them returned. So we can't really swag the downtime. We can only take take a stab at what the Cardinals would do in the meantime without knowing how long the meantime lasts. Uh, They they brought Brad Miller off of their in from the alternate site uh, and activated him he was a shortstop back in his younger days, but only played there once last year with the Phillies, I believe it was. So I don't think he's an everyday option. Probably the best everyday option is going to be to move Tommy Edmond over to the shortstop, who, you know, Edmond, of course, is a jack of many trades, but he may have to uh, 
establish uh, permanent residence at the shortstop position, at least for a little while here. I thought so too. Uh, and then, that, of course, that opens up the third base spot. And the, uh, when you look at the uh, the Cardinals' depth chart, as you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the situation in Atlanta, not a lot of depth on the depth chart when you come to the infield. They've got uh, added a couple of guys at Mundo Sosa and Max Schrock got called up. Sosa has already gone on. Uh, uh, he's one of the guys that got identified as having the uh, having the COVID virus as well, so he comes up and immediately is lost to them. But what about this guy, Max Schrock? Yeah, Schrock does look like he might be the next man up here, along with Miller, to you know sort of cover the third base hole if it is Edmund at shortstop. Uh, these guys could get over there. Of course, Matt Carpenter could be in the mix too. Um, but Schrock was a he was a seven D prospect on our rating system this year, which you know sets his ceiling as a regular player. But even that's not a high percentage outcome with the the D rating. He's five nine and a, more of a doubles power guy. Uh, just 24 home runs and 2,000 minor league at bats, which is you know roughly four seasons. So clearly not a thumper. Uh, he hasn't played much shortstop, which confirms to me, I think, that Edmonds is going to be the guy at short. Uh, but he does play a fair amount of third base, but may, his arm may even be uh, be a little weak for that. He's more of a cast in a you know, long-term utility role. But, you know, this is, a, this is an all-hands-on-deck battlefield promotion kind of situation. So he could see some short-term playing time. Also in St. Louis, another COVID-positive test for another big name. A future Hall of Famer, in all likelihood, catcher Yadier Molina has the bug. Yeah, and that's obviously bad news for the Cardinals, too. This is the, this is their uh, manager on the field and, you know, the uh, heart and soul of the uh, of the team, as it were. Again, like we said with DeYoung, it's hard to say how long he'll be out. We can talk about what they'll do in the meantime. It's pretty clear they have Matt Wieters and Andrew Neiser, uh, to step into the catching role, uh, Weeders, you know, for all of the hype of his youth, is now a uh, mid-thirties journeyman backup catcher. I think we know what he is, and it's not terribly exciting. There's, you know, even the mid-thirties catcher power bump that we often look for hasn't really materialized with him. Um, Neither is a little more interesting. He became he got on my radar screen. I guess it was last year when the Cardinals made the Paul Goldschmidt trade because. You'll remember that one of the pieces they sent to Arizona in that trade was Carson Kelly, and the reports were that the reason they did that was because Kelly was ready to catch then, but they had just extended or were just about to extend Molina for a couple more years, and they still had Neiser coming up in the system and thought that he was the one whose arrival time would sort of better dovetail with how much career Molina had left. And so here we are with uh, that transition getting forced a little bit right now, at least temporarily, by the uh, by, by Molina's diagnosis so i would think Nizer's going to get a look um you know when he's jumping up from uh you know he had a big year in rookie ball a couple of years ago but he's hit at every level um eight, at an 821 ops in triple a last year a total of 37 homers and about a thousand major league at bats minor league at bats so that's that, that's more productive than some of the other infielders we were talking about for sure and Ray, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention for anybody who's got Phillies or Marlins player, they're really going to get at it in the next uh, five days. I understand they're going to play seven times in five days, a couple of double headers, those seven inning things, plus they're going to make up some lost ground from earlier. So if you have Phillies slash Marlins, or especially both, uh, get down in front of your TV, make sure you got the extra innings package or whatever you need to make sure you can watch these games because there's going to be plenty of them. 
That's right. And, you know, the funny thing about the seven inning games is they'll cost everybody, you know, some at bats on the on the hitting side between you know the seven inning games and probably some guys getting back ends of double headers off and that sort of thing. But on the flip side, on the pitching side, you know, there's a win in every game, and there's, as you said earlier, a save in about half of them. So the uh, the opportunity for wins and saves on the, on those teams are going to start catching up to uh, to the field. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, in in uh, some of the leagues I'm in, I'm still jumping around. You know, if I could pick up three saves in a weekend or in this in this short stretch, I could literally jump up five points. Uh, the leagues are still set up that way. And a little later on, I'll be talking about the sad arithmetic of the short season uh, as far as my six ERA and the 1.8 oh. whip yeah, that I'm never going to be able to recover. Yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? All right, Ray, thanks for pinch hitting for Nick. Uh, Nick should be back next week, assuming no earthquakes or plagues of frogs or meteorites. Uh, meanwhile, let's forge ahead with your regular American League report. And Ray, the top story of the week so far is the news that Shohei Otani won't be pitching again this season and his hitting role might also be in play although he has hit since the announcement in response in part in response i guess the angels have called star outfield prospect joe adele up to the majors looks like he's going to play yeah it looks like he's going to play and this is for people who have been watching joe adele is you know in some sense long overdue we've been waiting for this for a long time i don't think he would have made the club out of spring training in 2019 but he was really turning heads in camp there, but then suffered a uh, pretty significant leg injury, as I recall, that cost him like half of 2019 uh, before he even got back on the field. And when he did, he was shaking off the kinks and, you know, spent the year in the minors. And then, you know, we were hoping he'd make the team out of camp in 2020 or shortly thereafterwards, but, you know, global pandemic. So, you know, from March 2019 to here in August 2020, we're finally seeing him in the bigs. uh, And it as you say, I think he's here to stay. They were, you know, Justin Upton's not a uh, paragon of health. You know, Trout has left and come back for the birth of his child, which is, you know, one uh, outfield spot covered there. But they were sort of faking the third outfield spot with, uh, you know, Brian Goodwin and some other people to begin with. So Adele should, I think, uh, be a fixture in right field from this point on. His minor league record is kind of a mixed bag. When I looked at it, I thought uh, from all the hullabaloo that uh, Joe Adele would have been like a, just a nonstop success. But uh, last year when he got promoted to AAA, and you could argue maybe too early, a 676 OPS, which wasn't great. But in his lower lower level minor league stops, he has been pretty terrific, including uh, ringing up some pretty good power numbers and the occasional stolen base. Yeah, it's a, it's a very toolsy package. Like you say, there's a... Uh... You know, there's both power and speed there, and yeah, it's been a little bit rocky in the upper minors, uh, but like I said, some of that was related to, uh, you know, coming back from injury last year and, uh, you know, the associated layoff with that, but, uh, you know, still only 21 years old, and, uh, you know, it, from our prospect rankings, uh, you know, we've got Wander Franco as a pretty clear number one prospect in baseball, but you know, Adele is as good as anybody else the way we see it. So, uh, you, you know, there's going to be, you know, we didn't, we never know exactly how these guys are going to transition in, but he's going to get an extended look here and he might produce here. He might not in this sprint season, but I think it's only a good thing for his long-term value. He gets his feet wet and gets a, uh, gets a couple of rounds around the league or well, at least the, uh, the Western divisions looking, uh, looking ahead to 2021 and his first full season. 
Jock Thompson reported on the story for Playing Time today. Uh, Jock, of course, very close with the Angels, keeps very close track of that, and is the American League West uh, reporter for Playing Time tomorrow as well. He reports that Michael Hermosillo has been sent down to the alternate camp. He'll lose pretty much all of the playing time we had forecast for him. Brandon Marsh loses some playing time as well. And then we have Shohei Otani himself. Now, the likelihood is he's not going to pitch again this year. This looks like some one of those injuries that uh, presages elbow problems. Uh, we've talked about that in the past. So I don't think we can expect any kind of uh, comeback to pitching for Shohei Otani, especially since they have probably plans for him in the future as a pitcher. But the question is, uh, who's going to get the, the innings that Shohei Otani is no longer going to get? Yeah, so we covered this staff a little bit last week on the show, I think. We were talking about how they uh, – we were talking about starters and Patrick Sandoval was tagged by Stephen Nickrand as the Angels' sixth starter and a guy to watch. The difference was between Sandoval and all the other six starters is that the Angels were already in a six-man rotation because they were trying to uh, lock Otani in on – a particular day of the week and, you know, manage workload and that sort of thing. So they really go back to a five-man rotation now and Sandoval fits into, you know, one of the primary five spots, which over the course of the 10-week season probably means an extra start or two for him. Or if they decide to stick with six or mix in a sixth every now and then, it's probably Jaime Berea who uh, showed some flashes in the past in um, sort of a, a long, a long, long relief bulk role, um, and he's uh, he, he probably is the next man up in terms of inheriting some of the innings. But uh, you know, in terms of value, it's probably better news for Sandoval because he's going to start every fifth game instead of every sixth game. I was looking at Berea in one of my leagues uh, last year. He looked pretty good from a skills point of view. Uh, base performance value, uh, which is a combination of a bunch of metrics at Baseball HQ, was 80, which is pretty good. But on the field, he was actually not that good. A 642 ERA, 144 whip. What was going wrong with Jaime Berea, Ray, given the fact that he was getting, uh, you know, pretty decent dom rate, 8.2 strikeouts per nine. Not great, but not horrendous. Uh, his his command ratio was almost three strikeouts for every walk. These are the kind of numbers we generally look for, but it wasn't working for him. Yeah, there's one really big number that was, uh, you know, undermined all of the decent metrics you noted. The uh, the ADP BPV is, uh, you know, probably average or a tick above average and certainly would have supported an ERA in, uh, you know, probably low fours range rather than, uh, something that starts with a six, which is, of course, ghastly. Uh, and the, the way he got to that uh, six-plus ERA was with uh, by allowing uh, 2.6 home runs per nine, which uh, does not play at any level, shall we say. Uh, so that's a, <laughs> it's a pretty big problem, and we're going to want to uh, keep an eye on whether he's doing a better job keeping the ball down or keeping the ball in the park. Uh, it wasn't entirely a fluke. In I mean, that number's terrible. But it wasn't entirely in the fluke in the sense that he was a fly ball pitcher. He was giving up uh, 46% fly balls compared to only 34% ground balls. So with a with a fly ball tilt and then a uh, maybe a propensity to get a little bit hit a little bit hard, uh, you know the, the home run rate is uh, you know probably a dicey proposition. But still, even with a dicey proposition, you know a bad home run rate might be you know one seven one eight one nine two six is uh, two six is among the worst I've ever seen. 
But a 20% home run per fly ball rate, as you mentioned, is is unusually high. Uh, certain pitchers are going to give up those kind of home runs because they give up a lot of fly balls, as you said. And in his instance, he seems to give up a, a, an inordinate amount of hard hit fly balls. But if he were to cut the home run per fly ball rate from 20 back to 10, which is what he did in 2018, all of a sudden his home run rate, while still a little high, it would be 1.3 instead of 2.6. And what we like one or less. But uh, an effective fly ball pitcher can succeed in Major League Baseball. But again, I think now that 8.2 strikeout rate, 8.2 per nine, doesn't look good enough. Because if you're going to give up a lot of fly balls, you have to have, I think, more strikeouts than this. This is something that Gene McCaffrey, our guest this week, talks about all the time. Fly ball pitchers can succeed, but they have to get the strikeouts as well. It's part of the package. Right, and the 8.2 strikeout rate is... You know, pretty darn close to average in this uh, day and age. The, you know, the only other point I'll gently make in a a tepid endorsement of Berea here is that the very early ten day old data seems to suggest that the ball is not quite as juiced as it was last year. So, if that's one of the contributing factors in that twenty percent home run per fly rate that tortured Berea last year, there's so, there's some natural expectation that things get better just because uh, you know we're not playing with super balls. It doesn't seem. And before we leave Shohei Otani, uh, Jock Thompson in his report said we have to consider Otani as a hitter day to day until further notice. This was a couple of days old. Have we heard anything about uh, whether Shohei Otani is going to continue to swing the bat? Uh, I do not have an update on that yet, but um, it sounds like, uh, you know, unless they decided that, I mean, we could do the math here. If they decided that he's going to have. Tommy John, or if it was that bad, then, you know, where we are in the calendar, he would, he wouldn't pitch again until 2022 anyway. So it's probably one of those situations where he does not need to, um, there's not a lot of difference between shutting him down now and shutting him down uh, at the end of September in terms of his recovery as a pitcher. Moving along, before the season started, this short season part, I mean, uh, there was a lot of discussion about how people were going to play their bullpens. Uh, a lot of people saying, I'm really going to go out and get one of those premium closers because i got to get some saves, and the saves category could be critical because it'll be all bunched, so if I can get a couple of guaranteed closers, I'm that much closer to getting 12 points or 15 points in the category. And one of the closers that fell into that category of can't miss was the uh, uh, Astros' Roberto Osuna. Guess what? <laughs> He's on the IL. He's got some kind of forearm problem, uh, elbow problem. This does not look good for Roberto Osuna, and it certainly doesn't look good for his owners. No, it looks uh, downright terrible for Osuna. Uh, I haven't seen confirmation yet, but I think what I saw was the the first examination recommended Tommy John surgery, and he's out uh, getting a second opinion or... You know, maybe one of those situations where he keeps looking for other opinions until he finds somebody who disagrees. Uh, but yeah, that it certainly sounds like his season is over. And as we we're just saying with the uh, you know the, the calendar, that's uh, very bad news for his 2022 as well. Excuse me, 2021 as well. We may not see him till 2022, and that you know that's a pretty significant shuffle in the Astros bullpen. You know, we think of the Astros as sort of the AL version of the Dodgers in terms of having depth everywhere. But, you know, with losing Verlander and Cole leaving in the offseason and now losing Asuna, you know, on the pitching side, at least, they're uh, they're getting pretty thin. And it's uh, getting kind of uh, 
dicey in that bullpen to try to figure out, you know, who the next man up is. So who's the next man up? Exactly. Uh, you know, it seems like the first one, the, the obvious candidate is Ryan Presley, who's been one of the best uh, non-closer relievers in baseball for the last couple of years. But he's been dealing with, you know, some health issues of his own uh, stuff, not as significant as Osuna, but, you know, he was brought along slowly in camp. And then uh, I think on the opening weekend of the season, there was a sliced finger that uh, shut him down, that, that was impacting his availability. So he's probably the first guy up, but he's always been sort of a, uh, you know, a um, luxury sports car that needs to be handled with care sort of thing, not a, not a workhorse. Uh, the guy who's caught my eye in the very early going here is a lefty by the name of Blake Taylor. Um, he's been very effective and increasingly by, I guess, by both his effectiveness and by the need for battlefield promotions in this bullpen, uh, has been working into higher, higher leverage roles. I caught him last Sunday, I believe, where he pitched an inning and a third to get the win in extra innings. And uh, that, you know, getting the win in extra innings over multiple innings means he twice navigated the runner on second base without allowing a run and bought the uh, Astros time to score. So he's got, I think it's two walks and nine strikeouts through seven innings and really seems like he is, uh, you know, maybe the one guy who is set to fill some of the gap here. So he's a, he's a guy I actually added a bunch of uh, speculatively this weekend, hoping that, uh, you know, if it's not Presley or if Presley can't carry the entire workload, that Taylor might be the guy who gets tapped. And you got the right hand, left hand deal going on as well, which the Astros might be uh, feeling like they can exploit, especially in uh, as as we get into the double hitter season with the seven inning games and stuff. Uh, guy, guys like Taylor, we've given him fifteen percent of uh, uh, improvement in saves. Uh, Presley gets twenty percent. I think that reflects what you said about the likelihood of the two of them. Uh, one guy I was thinking about when I first heard this news was Framber Valdez, who looked pretty good in a start I watched the other night. Yeah, I was kind of wondering about that too, both between Framber Valdez and uh, Christian Javier, who's sort of got a lot of buzz, and whether the Astros would try to plug one of those into the bullpen. Valdez was interesting because he actually he pitched very well. I think that was actually a relief appearance, though, uh, that, that you're talking about, where he threw like six innings, but out of the bullpen and was very, very sharp. Uh, so, but they, you know, they've. They, Given the Verlander injury, the Astros sort of have a, you know, which hole do you want to cover up problem in that, you know, they could use Valdez in the rotation. They've got Javier there right now. Javier actually ended up picking up uh, the start that Valdez was supposed to make early this week after Valdez had that long relief appearance. So, you know, Valdez and Javier both, I think, are big part, are increasingly important parts of this pitching staff now where they get deployed is a little bit still TBD, I think. Staying with uh, guys who are leaving the lineup uh, in Boston, uh, your Boston Red Sox have had no end of trouble with their rotation, and uh, now comes the really, really bad news about left-hander Eduardo Rodriguez, arguably the best pitcher on the staff. He's not going to pitch at all this year because he's had uh, uh, something to do with COVID, but it's not respiratory. It's a heart condition, which sounds way more serious than uh, a lot of the kind of flu-like symptoms basically that a lot of young major leaguer athletes get from covid 
and uh, it's going to be really disappointing to uh, to owners. And boy, I don't know what are they going to do next in Boston with uh, trying to get uh, five starting pitchers out there. Yeah, I, I think the answer is they're not. And you're, you, everything you said about Rodriguez is exactly right. It's a it's a terrible story. And you know, you know, you know, he's picked up this myocarditis. Uh, complication from his uh covid illness which he said is something that is a uh, you know complication that pops up in 10 to 20 percent of cases and hopefully best case scenario that's something that most people who just lead regular lives you know deal with and over the course of a couple of months or whatever it clears up but you know him trying to you know be an athlete performing at an elite level uh you know that was too much risk to take for uh, for him right now. So certainly hopefully see him in 2021 back to full strength. But as far as the Red Sox rotation, oh yeah, they're, I mean, they're not even pretending to have five starters at this point. It's Nathan Yavaldi and Martin Perez and Ryan Weber basically pretending to be starters. And then on days four and five, even if those guys go five innings with, you know, in their three turns, which is uh, less than a 50-50 proposition at this point. Uh, it's just bullpen day after that. So I think the Sox would be very excited if MLB confirmed that they're going to stick with 30-man rosters all year because they're very much going with the uh, two- to three-inning revolving door approach and bringing in guys like uh, Zach Godley they picked up off of waivers last week. And uh, Dylan Covey, I don't believe, has been added to the active roster yet, but is uh, you know, but it was also picked up at as a uh, free pickup and will probably be seen at some point. It's uh, I was surprised they didn't claim Mike Fulton but I guess there's still time for that uh, to work out a deal, but they're going to, you know, anytime anybody gets cut loose for the next six weeks, I think you can, uh, you can expect to see their name associated with the Red Sox. One of the mantras at baseball HQ is, uh, you know, the role is uh, not as important as the skills. So we see guys like Darwin's and Hernandez, Chris Mazza, um, those that ilk of pitchers, we assume that they're going to get more innings, uh, plus two percent, plus one percent in that range. Still doesn't make them rosterable in most fantasy contexts. I'm going to guess. No, I mean you know the individual circumstances are going to vary. Hernandez is at least conceivably interesting. He's got a lot of good stuff, and you know, but significant control problems, and he's. He was wondering what was delayed coming back to camp uh, in July because of COVID, uh, and is now throwing at the alternate site. So it's, I, but again, it's a question of you know, what role are they going to come back in? I it seems unlikely to me that they would stretch him out to be a true starting pitcher. He's certainly somebody who, once activated, could plug into this two or three inning revolving door role. But you know, the problem with the two or three inning revolving door role is. You know, you got to be the guy who's on the mound at the time when, you know, they take the lead or the, you know, a two to three inning stint in the fourth, fifth and sixth inning is way more valuable than in the first, second and third. So the Red Sox aren't even pretending they seem to have uh, serious, you know, assigned roles in that sense. Now, the guy who I think is the closest to having that right now seems to be the middle middle inning. Hey, we got a chance to win this game guy. Let's bring bring him in. Seems to be Marcus Walden. And he, Walden got a ton of vulture wins last year. I think he actually had nine or ten. And is you know seems from the early signs I've seen seems to be the one who's getting used in that. Okay, we made it to the fifth inning, and this game's still close. Let's try Walden for a little while and see what happens. So if you're you know it's a little early, you know it's August. It's not early, but I mean if you're if you're in a position when where you need to be trolling for wins and you're staring at this pile of nondescript Red Sox pitchers 
Walden's is probably as good a guess as anybody from where I'm sitting. Ray, one of the impacts that the pandemic and the and the suspended season and all of that had at Baseball HQ was there was a slowdown in the research because there's nothing to research. We didn't know if they were going to play. We didn't know where they were going to play or how they were going to play. But uh, just this past weekend, a really interesting two-part series from Ed DiCaria of Baseball HQ. And the idea of it was surprisingly productive years. That was the title of the of both of them. There's one for hitters, one for pitchers. And I'd like to talk to you about this because I thought this was really interesting. He's done this before, but maybe we could start by just discussing the methodology that Ed applied to figuring out what qualifies a player to be described as having had uh, an unusually productive year, surprisingly productive year. Yeah, I love this series too. And it's, uh, you know, Ed, you know, puts, puts a heck of a lot of effort into it. He's got a great methodology that, as you said, he, uh, you know, he tweaks every year. I was going to use the words, you know, fools around with, but that really undersells the, uh, you know, the rigor behind this. It's, uh, you know, Ed's really approaching this from a, uh, you know, metric driven point of view. And I love what he does with it. Really, the the root concept behind it is if you take a look at our projections or if you take the custom draft guide and run projections for your league, there's always a whole pile of guys who are projected for a zero dollar value or worse. The guy, you know, the guys who are below the one dollar end gamers, the guys who sort of exist in the basement of the projection system, for lack of a better description. But Ed's principle here is he we know that a decent chunk of those guys are actually going to return positive value because they get more playing time or their skills look better than we projected or both of the above. So his quest here is to sort of figure out who those guys might be. And it's fascinating the way he goes about it. He pulls in a bunch of components from the player's own skill set, from their playing time projection. And also what I thought was really cool was he looks at the playing playing time projections on the team of the guys in front of him and tries to assess, uh, he takes a look at our reliability grades and sort of tries to quantify what the playing time upside is for these guys. Uh, you know, it's, you know, if you're the fourth outfielder behind three guys who have spent 300 days each on the DL in the last five years, that's different than being the, um, the fourth outfielder behind, behind behind three guys who never was a game, that sort of thing. So there's a whole bunch of secrets, you know, a whole bunch of uh, ingredients to this little recipe that Ed concocts here, but the results are always interesting. And I, a whole bunch of names jumped out at me here, PD. I'm sure you've probably got some, some favorites of your own too. Yeah, there's a lot of them, and uh, I was impressed by the example that he used, which really put it into very clear focus for me, which is Kevin Pillar, an outfielder in Boston. We had him projected for about 40% of all the playing time in the outfield as of opening day. But then Ed says, but we got all these other outfielders in front of him, J.D. Martinez, Ben Benintendi, uh, Jackie Bradley Jr., Peraza to an extent. Plus you had Alex Verdugo, who's going to play because of Mookie Betts being the guy he replaced, Rusny Castillo, even uh, Tsu Wei Lin had some playing time scheduled in. But then Ed used this mathematical construct to say, if you add it all up, there's a playing time upside here of 24 added percentage points for uh, Pilar. So if you give him his 40 that we gave that we were going to give him anyway, the possibility exists that he could actually add a, a, another 50% worth of innings 
uh, uh, or playing time from 40 to over 60%, and all of a sudden his values should shoot up because he does have some skills that translate well to fantasy value. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's a good example of the sort of – I was walking through the theoretical example, but yeah, it was Polar who applied to that. And the other point he made, which makes a ton of good sense, is – the benefit it multiplies even more for guys with multi-position eligibility. I mean, technically, any outfielder is a multi-position eligible player because they they're backing up three guys, right? right. Um, but you know, then you, you know, on, on the same team, you know, sticking with Boston, you can take Peraza, and he took him from sixty percent playing time to eighty percent because you know he could pick up to some of the same chunk of the outfield time that he was pointing to for, for Pilar, but he can also fill in at second, short, and third. So you know, that's just a lot of pass to playing time and. The, you know, the, when you apply that across all these players, you know, there's a speculative element to this because, like, you take Pilar and, you know, you, we have to keep in mind that the player's skill set doesn't necessarily map linearly to more playing time. Like, Pilar is present, projected for the base of 40% playing time in Boston because, again, most of those are bats against left-handed pitching when Ben Benintendi and Bradley and Verdugo sit down. What's been happening is Polar has been replacing basically one of those guys every time the Sox face a lefty. And then he sneaks into the lineup every now and then against righties. But Polar is a better hitter against lefties. So if the additional at-bats that um, Ed speculates about here come against righties, doesn't necessarily mean the skills are going to map one to one, but this is a sixty-game season, and you know absolutely anything can happen. And the whole point here is to be kind of, uh, you know, it's not exactly a speculator, a speculator type exercise, but it's it's out on a limb a little bit. It's you know forecasting things that are not in direct evidence from the projections. So uh, you know, it's take you know there, there are there are some liberties taken here, but I think all to a very good end. Let's talk about a couple of the players uh, that Ed identified as having this this playing time combined with uh, skills upside. And one of them jumped out at me because I have him on, on my American League tout team, uh, Jose Martinez in Tampa. Yeah, he was one of the first ones that caught my eye too. And he talked about, uh, you know, a base of, you know, it's got 40% playing time like Pilar now, but, uh, you know, the... You know, he estimated that the, the upside for that would be another 25%, 26%, which is, would be enough to make him virtually the good side of a platoon player. And, you know, Tampa does that team pretzel thing down there. So, you know, they, they have a lot of pieces that can move in and out, which, you know, to a player like Martinez, I think that's actually good news if they treat that as a meritocracy, because I think what we've established for Martinez from seeing him with the Cardinals is – He's got a real good hit tool. Doesn't necessarily mean there's a lot of power or speed there, but you know he can flat hit. He's a line. He's one of those quote unquote, you know, professional hitter, line drive machine types. And you plug that into the lineup, he gets off to a good start, and he may start stealing at bats from a whole bunch of other people here. Yeah, he could. Uh, uh, right below uh, Jose Martinez on Ed's list of hitters. Uh, this name I'm not so confident about, Rowdy Tellez of Toronto. We know he can hit. I think the problem there is no matter what kind of mathematical machinations you do, it's really hard to see Tellez taking any at-bats away from uh, uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. at first base in Toronto. Uh, Guerrero's obviously part of the future of the club, and, uh, and Tellez I don't think can hit like Guerrero can hit if they both reach their potential. Why is Rowdy Tellez on the list beyond the fact that uh, there might be some playing time. Yeah, that's the, uh, 
that's that's the mess there. You're, you're certainly right about Vlad. The Telez was sort of the initial loser in the Vlad move to first base thing because it kind of took away. It, it was much more reasonable to think that Telez was going to take at bats from Travis Shaw in a if the two of them were battling for first base DH at bats. You could see. Telez maybe even being more of a part of a future in Toronto. But to your point, Vlad's going to play every day, and that closes one of the paths to at-bats there. But on the other hand, if you lock, even if you lock Vlad at third base, there's not an obvious designated hitter here. The way we have the playing time broken out is we must have, I'm counting with my eyes here, there must be nine guys here who are projected for some playing time at the DH position. And they may very well do that as a revolving door of guys like Grichuk and Tiasca Hernandez. Hernandez is off to an excellent, excellent start, of course. Uh, Oris Gurriel, the outfielders could all flow through the DH spot. Vlad could spend some time there. Uh, Shaw from third base could spend some time there. But if Tolez can hit, you know, there might be an opportunity for him to entrench himself as the DH and force some of these guys to spend more time out in the field. I think that is the path. Uh, one last guy, uh, Jose Peraza up there in Boston. This is somebody you're going to be familiar with. And uh, Ed's note here is that uh, he's that this guy's got the tools, right? He can hit. He can hit for power a little bit. He can certainly run the bases. And there's a lot of pathways for Jose Peraza on a fairly weak uh, Red Sox team to find some playing time. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, having not watched Peraza up close and then watching him for the first week of the season or so here, he, he's sort of not at all what I expected. Um, I, I guess I sort of expected Billy Hamilton light, you know, where, you know, he ru- he's a speedster and he can, but he, but he can knock the bat out of his hands. The, the sort of good news, bad news of this is his bat's better than I thought it was. Uh, and I gather going back to March that, uh, you know, when they acquired him, the Red Sox have been uh, retooling his swing quite a bit. And it seems like it's bearing some fruit. Uh, you know, he's a, he frankly has looked like a better hitter than I thought. You know, the contact skill was always there. He's a, you know, through his whole career, been an 85% plus contact guy, which in this day and age is, you know, darn near elite, but uh, he's making more hard contact this year, which I, which I is not necessarily showing up as batting average yet, but that seems promising. The flip side of it though, and the bad news for the fantasy players is he's not running at all, which is kind of why, kind of why we were interested in him. So that's great. If he can't, you know, the bat's not a noodle, that's good news, but you know, the, the Billy Hamilton's bat isn't there, but neither are Billy Hamilton's legs, which is kind of a problem. So, uh, you know, that might just be a needing to get uh, more opportunities or the right opportunities, obviously, in the course of, uh, you know, a week. They, uh, you know, the, not every trip to first base has been a uh, prime running opportunity, and the Sox have been uh, also uh, blown out quite a bit. So, you know, that may also be tamping down the, the individual running opportunities. So I'm not closing the door there yet totally, but. Uh, the lack, if, if, if Jose Peraza is not a stolen base threat, I'm not interested. As I mentioned, Ed also did this exercise for pitchers. Uh, the two articles appeared almost back to back at baseballhq.com. And uh, the formula or the mechanism that he used to 
create this table is a little bit more complicated. Uh, suffice to say, it still does rely on skills, but there are some other things going on. Uh, the, the, he's looking at strikeouts, ground balls, command, which is pretty standard and what you'd expect, but there's some other stuff going on with reliability ratings rather than the pure playing time ratings that he used. And uh, it's, it's worth reading about. It's too complicated to get into here. But uh, I was interested to see that one of the names near the top of the table was the Yankees' uh, Jonathan Loezaga. Yeah, he was somebody you know, who we've been watching. You sort of have to pay attention to anybody on the Yankee pitching staff because the um, the offense behind him is just so good. And you know, Loezaga seems to be early of, on a jack-of-all-trades for that uh, that staff, which in the 60-game season seems like a pretty valuable slot to fill into. Uh, if you think back to March, he sort of fell out of the fifth rotation, fifth spot in the rotation battle uh, to Jordan Montgomery. But, you know, Lois Saiga's getting some decently leveraged work here. I think if they needed another starter, if somebody got hurt, he could be stretched out pretty quickly. But even if he, if he, even if he toils a middle relief here, I think there's a, uh, there's a decent path to value because – uh, the Yankees are going to, at some point, be pretty careful with their starters, wanting to keep them lined up for October. So there may be some workload constraints that either lead to starters skipping starts or starters having abbreviated outings. And Lois Saga seems like he's primed to be the uh, the guy who absorbs some of those innings and uh, could pick up some wins along the way. And, of course, uh, a lot of people in the bullpen in New York stepped up a notch because of uh, Tommy Canely's uh, on the IL. He's going to have Tommy John surgery, apparently, so he's completely done. And whatever the Yankees were going to do to manage their pitching is now going to exclude Tommy Canely, which, again, seems to give a path in for a guy like Luizaga to either get into the rotation as a part-time guy or to take a more valuable vulture role in the in the later innings rather than early on. I think there's a lot of pathways there. Another guy that uh, that Ed identified, interestingly enough, somebody we talked about a moment ago, Framber Valdez of Houston, has a path to playing time and value. Yeah, yeah, it's a great example of the name the validation of this approach that it has is it's bubbling up these names that, you know, we're, we're already sort of, you know, top of mind for us. As we mentioned with Valdez earlier, you know, he's stretched out to start right now. And given Verlander's injury, he probably will stay that way. And he's pitched very, very well. You know, the wart on his uh, skill set to this point had been control, but it was, I thought it was, uh, you know, sort of deeply ironic that uh, he came in for Josh James in that outing over the weekend when, uh, Valdez, when James walked six and went and threw like you know his full complement of pitches in uh, about four innings, and Valdez came in and uh, threw five or six of his own after that, and he's showing some growth in the control department. Uh, you know, through eleven innings this year, he's got two walks and ten strikeouts. His uh, he's not issuing the walks, even though he's still falling behind in the count a little bit. So worth keeping an eye on that because if he actually is taming the control demon that is really the one thing that was holding him back and in fact ed notes in his uh little notes at the far right edge of the table might be better as a relief pitcher and certainly that's a possibility and finally uh matt andres uh, also makes the list the angels pitcher another guy that ed targets is possibly a long relief guy who could pick up wins yeah, you know, he, he probably should have been mentioned again, top of the show with us, in the Cascades of the Otani 
uh, news. He uh, Andrews to me is fairly analogous to Lois Saga with the Yankees. Uh, he had a relief outing. It was either opening day or the second day of the season where he came out of the pen and threw like five and a third or something like that. And then um, came in for a second outing against the Astros and got racked. But if they're going back to the Otani injury, if Sandoval is the fifth starter now, if they want a sixth starter, maybe it's Berea or maybe Berea and Andres are the uh, second man in or the guys who are filling in for the starters who are not going five innings on a regular basis. So there's, uh, you know, there have, there have long been good skills with Andrews going back um, to his time in Tampa several years ago. He is sort of the closest thing that I can think of in the game right now to sort of a true swing man. He's not really a starter. I think his career high in innings is uh, 120, but he does hang up, you know, triple digit base performance values with some regularity and he's, he's, he was in a full season. He was pretty much good for 80 to hundred, very good innings. So you prorate that down, but somebody who could come out of that angels pen and fire two or three good innings, two or three times a week, which, you know, is safer and maybe more valuable than a starting pitcher in this day and age. And worth noting that Ed DiCaria also noted in that Angels pitching staff, Patrick Sandoval. And uh, his note was he's stuck in a six-man rotation, which dampens his value. Now we know maybe he's the fifth guy, not the sixth guy. There's a pathway to added value as well. Boy, this is a super interesting article. It's well worth reading uh, both the hitter and the pitcher versions. Uh, Ed Dakari did a terrific job on this. Ray, you did a terrific job explaining it, and uh, it was fun talking about it. And we'll catch up with you again next week. There should be plenty to talk about. Always a pleasure. Thanks, PD. Ray Murphy is Baseball HQ columnist and co-general manager, and he's our man on the American League beat for Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, part two of our feature expert interview with Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball, a writer at The Athletic, coming up next. Stay with us. Pitch is a high fly ball to right deep, going back is Tarasco to the warning track, to the wall, he's under it now, and it's taken away from him by a fan, and they're going to call it a home run. I can't believe it. Pitching Garcia is calling it a home run. HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball, and of course, a fantasy baseball writer at The Athletic. And Gene, uh, you said in a July article in The Athletic before the short season started that while you can see why people think 2020 is the year to take a lot of gambles because of heightened variance, you're pretty sure that 2020 is the year that you're going to play the percentages relentlessly. Why that approach? Well, because I think if you have the percentages on your side, you can still get the luck on your side. Um, And if you play the percentages relentlessly, home starts, good teams, good matchups, um, it gives you more opportunities for the luck to turn your way. Uh, we know there's going to be good and bad luck, but it's really important to to maximize the good luck, and I think that playing the percentages is the best way to do that. Can you give us an example of what you mean by playing the percentages? What kind of a circumstance uh, gives you the opportunity to either play the percentages or throw the dice in a, in the way that you're thinking about here? 
Uh, basic stuff. I mean, when I was drafting my um, my teams I, in the short season, I said, well, wait a minute. Who's going to play the most games in Coors Field? Um, therefore, Yastrzemski and Giants became more. My last reserve pick was Pablo Sandoval. Um, Trent Grisham was another guy that I picked for that reason over several comparable players. Um, basic stuff like that. Um, again, good teams. Um, home run, you know, if you're, are your home run hitters going to be playing in, um, you know, bad pitchers parks or good pitchers parks? Um, a little, take your hitters on the Yankees um, because they're, they're going to be playing games in Yankee Stadium. They're going to be playing games against the Orioles, uh, like that. I mean, nothing super sophisticated. Think just things that everybody knows and to maximize them. At bats, plate appearances. Excuse me. Yeah, and and innings and opportunities. I think I hear where where you're coming from. And in season, it seems like uh, the place to apply that kind of thinking is in fab bidding, where we have always are faced with the opportunity to say, "Am I going to bid a little more aggressively on a guy that I that I'm more confident in as the percentages dictate, or should I maybe throw a couple of one dollar flyers at these lesser guys with?" you know, some upside, but higher risk. And, uh, it sounds like what you're saying is look, look for the guys that you're a little more confident that are go- going to help. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't mean ignore hard hit data and strike out to walk data by, de- you know, absolutely incorporate them. But, you know, when you're faced with an equal decision between two more or less similar players, take the guy who's in more favorable circumstances. That's basically it. And on the topic of fab and and uh, using the uh, using the percentages in your favor, how are you managing player sickness? Especially the idea that you know every so often one of these guys comes up with a positive test, and assuming that he actually is positive, and that's by no means certain. Apparently, uh, judging from what's happened, that these positive tests are not always as positive as we might think. But if a guy does have COVID. And he, and he has to sit out for the 10 days or whatever it is, he comes back. How willing are you to take a chance on that guy this year? Absolutely willing to take a chance. I mean, if, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is not West Nile or Lyme's disease or Valley Fever where there's lasting weakness. Um, once you're better, you're better, and I think we've seen that already. Um, I took advantage of it in drafts as, as guys, you know, as long as they were as long as they were not starting the season on the DL or the IL, um, I was all for them, and I continue to, to be that way because as far as I can see, there was no evidence at all of lasting weakness, quite the contrary. Um, so I'm just blowing it off. As soon as he's back on the field, he's going to be back on my team. I think that is the sound percentage play. There are instances – uh, in the reporting of the, how the disease is working, where one out of every hundred young, re- relatively fit uh, young men who get the uh, get the uh, virus and have the effects of the illness do uh, endure some long-lasting effects of fatigue, mostly and joint pain and that kind of stuff, and nobody knows why. I mean, they're still doing research on why is it that two identical people get the virus and one of them gets sick for six months and one of them gets, you know, a a mild sniffles for four days and they they can't figure out why just yet. 
But given the fact that most people, especially fit young athletes like these guys, recover pretty fully pretty quickly, uh, it seems like not taking them is just being sort of panicky and missing out on an opportunity. Yeah, well, no player was sicker than Freddie Freeman, and actually he's not hitting. Um, but there's nothing wrong with him. I've been watching him, and, and, and so that to me sort of sealed the deal is that, you know, you, you can't be any sicker than he was with this um, and not die. And so, I mean, even though he's not really hitting, he's still walking and he's, he's looking good. So take heart. And, um, and I think that that will apply, as you say, I mean, there could be exceptions and, um, you know, like with Eduardo Rodriguez, who had another problem and it, it settled in his heart. And obviously that's very serious. Um, but that's going to be a, a tiny minority, I think. And, and so, Again, to me, that's a percentage play. You said the universal DH might have bigger effects than we thought. Uh, what's that about, and how has it worked out so far? Um, well, it added, you know, at least ten hitters to the pool, um, which meant that I thought that uh, we should take pitchers earlier in drafts, knowing that there's going to be plenty of good hitters available late, as there were. Um, so, yeah, at least ten hitters. I mean, guys who who had uncertain playing time, but who, but who could hit, uh, you know, old guys like, uh, Howie Kendrick and his Drupal Cabrera, uh, young guys like, uh, Dominic Smith on the Mets, uh, Philip Evans on the pirates. Um, they became guys who, who went from reserve picks or possible fab pickups to guys who were, you could feel reasonably confident putting them in the lineup. You also discussed what you called a rebound of home field advantage, and I wondered when I read it what it's rebounding from and why it's rebounding. Well, it's really strange because last year, I mean, all of baseball history, and I'm talking going back to the 19th century, the home field advantage is about 10%. I mean, it would vary maybe 9% one year, 11% the next year, but always within those parameters. And last year, the home field advantage was 5.6% out of nowhere and I, nobody mentioned it um the only explanation for it that i can think of is improved umpiring and there's no question that the ball strike improvement among umpires has been dramatic over the last 10 years i mentioned before that i had the data from last year but it was apparently compiled differently because the error rates were so much lower than they had been in the past but in any case, the evidence is clear that the that the uh, umpiring balls and strikes, which is the biggest advantage in baseball, had a, ahead in the count versus behind in the count, that the umpiring had improved dramatically. And uh, my hypothesis is that there had been a subconscious home bias in umpires' calls that has been disappearing. Now, I don't know that that's true, but it's a... You know, it makes intuitive sense, and I'm going to watch and see what the home field advantage is this year and see what happens again compared to the uh, balls and strike uh, accuracy. When you say the uh, 10% home field advantage, what do you mean? Players are 10% better at home than they're on the road. And teams, you know, a 500 team plays 550 at home and 450 on the road. That's That's what I mean. 
and it goes to the player statistics too. Now, obviously, there are exceptions, you know, for Coors Field and you know for whatever reason because such a large data sample. But that's that's the way it was, and that's the way it has basically always been. I was going to say uh, the presence of a home field bias in balls and strikes I thought was pretty well established up until a couple of years ago over over many years. Uh, kind of one of those things that everybody knew, especially on a close pitch. Uh, you know, if it's uh, a strikeout pitch on the right on the corner, the home guy gets a call to ball and the visitor guy gets a call to strike and he's punched out. And I think you're right. I think it is disappearing. And I, uh, there are umpires, of course, for whom it never will disappear. Uh, I, I expect, uh, although clearly Major League Baseball is using the, the, uh, the, data from the advanced measurement systems to go to the umpires and saying, you're missing this call consistently. You have to get better. And if you don't, then, uh, then something's going to happen to your umpiring career. And I think maybe some guys are just cracking down a little harder. And uh, if it makes the game more accurate, I'm for it. I have to say, although it certainly, um, mitigates against uh, taking advantage of the fact that one guy's always getting it wrong, mentioning no names. Right. Two points. One, the 10% advantage definitely fell right in line on strikeouts and walks. So that supports it also. And then the other thing is that the, uh, according to the research that I've seen, the, uh, the best umpires, the worst umpires are the old umpires, which makes sense. Um, they're set in their ways and they're not going to change and they can't be fired. Okay. The best umpires were the umpires in the middle group. Um, the young umpires were better than the old umpires, but not as good as the, as the you know the seven-year veteran, the fifteen-year veteran. Um, that's the sweet spot for umpiring. I think that's why. And yeah, I, they've been using the box, and the umpires have I think made a conscious effort to get better, and it's worked, and that is to their credit. Where do you stand on letting the machines just call the balls and strikes? Period. Uh, I have to be convinced that it can that it will do a better job. Um, there's so many, um, you know, a, was a ball tipped? Did it hit the ground before uh, the catcher caught it? You know, the, the, there's little things like that. Um, and, and then just in general, uh, the, the accuracy of it. I, I, I fear that if they went to that, that the number of strikes called would go way up. And I don't think that would be really good for the game. So I think that they they should really test it thoroughly for a long time in the minor leagues before they do it. And if it works, I'll go along with it. Um, but I want to be convinced. Yeah, it seems like if the if the reason for voting against it or for being against it as a as a concept is that calling balls and strikes correctly will result in a higher level of strikeouts. To a certain extent, that means that the, we're relying on umpires getting it wrong to make the game entertaining, and they'd have to do something about, you know, making the strike zone smaller, perhaps at the top of the zone, bring it down three inches, bring it up to the, you know, mid-thigh or something like that, and just force the pitchers to throw more inside a narrower space because the alternative seems to be we'll, we'll pretend that the strike zone is in spot A, but it's actually in spot B, but we're good with that because we don't want everybody striking out. Yeah, I, they might well have to make the strike zone smaller. The reason I said I think there'll be more strikes is because I think people, and even in the box, 
the box is two-dimensional, but the strike zone is three-dimensional. And I think that a lot of pitches touch the strike zone at some point where they're, where they're caught. They're definitely not strikes. Uh, but they might have caught the front of the plate on a on a breaking ball away uh, like that, and and umpires and you and me look at that and say, okay, that's a ball, but really it caught a little bit of the black. Um, so that's why I say that, and I could be wrong. Well, I used to umpire. I umpired for a long time, putting myself through school, and it's it's something that's really hard for people to to understand when you're back there that. You're, you're making these kind of decisions and you have to try to treat the strike zone as a three-dimensional object, uh, particularly a five-sided prism. And if a pitch moves a lot, there's a lot of ways for it to catch a piece of the strike zone that aren't immediately apparent. And no human being, I defy any human being to say with, with certainty that ball caught the front edge of the of the the front inside edge of that five-sided prism on its way through to being off the plate before and after it did that you know especially if it was if it was changing height at the same time it's it's a ridiculous ask of anybody to try to make that determination and that's why i suspect that uh, either they're going to have to go to the box and just say it's two-dimensional at the front or in the middle of the plate or somewhere or they're going to have to let machines do it because I don't think human beings can do it. Yeah, I think that if they're going to go do it, they just have to make sure that they're going to that it's going to be an improvement before they do it. And I, I'm I'm with you in the sense that anything that makes the the calls more accurate, I'm in favor of. I just want to be convinced that they of that before we take the plunge. And Gene, another thing that pops into my mind is. The rule of thumb when you're umpiring at any level is if any part of the ball catches any part of the plate, then it's a strike. And they could easily fix that by saying the entire ball has to be in the strike zone at, at any given point for it to be a strike. Much like a, a hockey goal, the puck has to be all the way past the line, not just partway past the line. And I think that would have the effect of narrowing the, the strike zone on all sides by the width of a baseball because it would have to be inside the thing and not just nicking the corners that went past. And that might, if, if they called it in that way, they can set it up to any way they like. But they could certainly get accurate strike zone calls that would also not stretch the strike zone out to where, you know, the 230 batting average we're seeing this year would be considered a high point. Yeah, I agree. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball and a fantasy baseball writer for The Athletic. And Gene, uh, as you know, during the season, I like to ask our experts to talk about players you think will be boons and banes for the rest of the year. It's a short year, but we still have boons and we still have banes. Uh, Let's start with your boons, and these are guys you think should interest our listeners. Let's start in the American League. Who's a hitter you think could be a real bane, a boon? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I really like the way Ramon Laureano looks. Um, he's uh, he's only needed to make minor improvements, and he's in the process of making them. And um, I think that he's a guy that should be on everybody's. Of course, he's been drafted, but uh, but he's up there in the in the hard hit leaders, and um, that's what I'm looking for mostly at, at this stage of the game. Because as as Michael Salfino says, this these stats stabilize quickly and we don't have a lot of time, um, so Loriano. I mean, he's just a 
And he's just a pleasure to watch, too. He's a great fielder, and uh, he runs well. He's got power. He's got it all. He's a, he's a ball player. He is. He's a terrific player to watch. Uh, in the National League, who's a boon hitter? Love Corey Seager at the very top of the hard-hit balls. Um, he's all the way back. You know, he went way too low this year. I mean, he missed time last year and still led the league in doubles, which is a nice old-school stat that, you know, if you don't have the baseball savant data, you can look at doubles and say, this guy can hit, and that guy can hit. He's in a great lineup, um, so he's uh, a great value play from now on. Corey Seager, of course, having a little bit of injury trouble. Over to the mound in the American League, who's a pitcher who could be a boon? Frommer Valdez and Zach Plezak, uh, lesser-known names, but uh, Valdez looks like he's in the Houston rotation. Um, he's also um, getting his feet wet. Plezak is also um, really commanding the strike zone, and therefore I think that he's going to stay in the Cleveland rotation. I saw Zach Plesak pitch the other day, and I thought, boy, oh boy, I'm sure sorry I missed out on this guy, because all of a sudden he just seems to have taken his game and really raised it up a, a complete notch. He looked really, really good. Uh, in the National League, who's a boon pitcher? Uh, Tyler Chatwood on the Cubs. It looks like he's harnessing his control, and there was never any question about his stuff. Um, he keeps the ball in the ballpark. As long as he can keep, keep his walks under 3.9, per nine, um, I think he's going to be a stud, and he's a guy I missed out on him. I wish I didn't. And I think Michael Salfino mentioned him in an article recently in The Athletic and said, uh, if he's still on your waiver wire, grab him. And, of course, as soon as I read it, I went and looked, and he wasn't, so tough luck for me. Uh, Gene McCaffrey's Boons, Ramon Laureano, Corey Seager, Framber Valdez, and Zach Plesak, a couple of AL pitcher Boons, and Tyler Chatwood of the Cubs. Uh, over to the Baines. Uh, these are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious. Uh, Gene, let's start again in the American League. Who's a hitter who could be a Bane? Um, well, if he continues his current approach, which looks like he's trying to take pitches, Andrew Benintendi. Uh, I, I wouldn't carve that one in stone, so I'll back him up with Edwin Encarnacion, uh, who looks lost and is not hitting the ball with authority, um, unfortunately for me. Unfortunately for me, too. I have three teams, and Edwin Encarnacion's one guy who's on all of them. And, yeah, it's it's been pretty, pretty sad to watch. Uh, National League hitter who could be a Bane? Uh, Victor Caratini on the Cubs. He was a guy who looked good for at-bats given the, the DH rule. And, of course, he's a catcher, so you don't need as much numbers there. But he is not hitting the ball with authority, and I think his playing time is in serious jeopardy. Back to the mound uh, in the American League. Who's a pitcher? Who's a bane? Uh, again, unfortunately, do not like the look of Lance McCullers. He's all over the place. Um, now, he's the kind of pitcher, um, high strikeout ground ball pitchers are gold to me. Um, but if you're going to walk the ballpark, you can need an awful lot of double plays to get out of it. And so in the shortened season, I, he's the guy that I would sell low. As you said earlier, and finally, a National League pitcher who could be a bane? Uh, I, Madison Bumgarner, I think, is shot. Um, I, I think it was there in the numbers. If you look at his road numbers the last two years, now he's not in a favorable ballpark anymore. Um, he's a guy that I would trade for peanuts if you have him. I don't have him anywhere. 
Gene McCaffrey's Baines, Andrew Benintendi of Boston, and Edwin Encarnacion of the White Sox, Victor Carantini of the Cubs, Lance McCullers of Houston, Madison Bumgarner of Arizona. Boy, uh, Gene, this has been a treat. Tell our listeners where they can keep up with Gene McCaffrey. I'm writing for The Athletic, and if you don't subscribe, please do, because you're missing a lot. Uh, not me, but you mean Eno Saris, Michael Salfino, uh, Derek Van Riper, Nando DeFino. I hope I didn't forget anybody. Uh, Brandon Funston, uh, got great writers. Um, there's good insight every day. There's comments. You can ask questions. You can challenge me and say, Hey, Gene, you were wrong about this. Um, eat crow. And I will. <laughs> and, and there's something to be said for that. Uh, also, I'll just give a plug for The Athletic as well. One of the great things about it, as far as I'm concerned, is the organization of it is it's it's organized on a city-by-city basis, which means all the teams in all the sports all the time are getting local coverage. It's a local operation that has a national reach. And the, the local coverage of the teams, if you just read it regularly, will give you a lot of insights into what might happen next, rather than waiting around until it happens and then getting into a bidding war with nine other guys who who are also doing the same thing. And the 10th the guy who said, I read in The Athletic two weeks ago that this guy's going to be the closer. That's when I got him. That's a huge advantage. Yeah, I think that it's the industry standard for sports reporting. I, I don't think there's anything better. And um, I don't say that because I'm honored. Because I'm honored to be in it. And um, I'm glad that they think enough, me, uh, enough of me to uh, pay me the pittance they pay me. Well, I wish I could pay you a pittance myself, Gene, or more than a pittance. <laughs> It's always so much fun to talk with you about fantasy baseball and life in general. Uh, uh, I don't think we're going to be able to meet up in uh, Arizona this year. Ray says that they're probably not going to have, uh, in fact, they're definitely not going to have a first pitch Arizona. But it's a pleasure to talk to you this way on the uh, on the Google Meets, and uh, I hope we get to do it again. Hey, Patrick, I might go anyway. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see what happens. But thank you so much for having me. It is always a true pleasure to talk to you. Gene McCaffrey is the wise guy of fantasy baseball and writes for The Athletic. We'll take a quick break now and be back with our Baseball HQ commentaries. Hey, taxi! And extra innings next on Baseball HQ Radio. And the pitch. Swung on in a high drive center field. Jones is going back. He turns. He looks. And that ball is history! Josh Hamilton has hit his fourth home run of the ball game. All of them two-run shots. Eight RBIs for Hamilton. And four home runs. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular Baseball HQ Radio commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up in a second. But leading off, it's Hey, Taxi! A commentary on players who are on Major League Baseball's taxi squads, but who might get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. And here with a look at Dodgers second baseman Zach McKinstry is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Hey, taxi! Beep beep! What do you think of Zach McKinstry? Drafted in the 33rd round in 2016, Los Angeles Dodgers second baseman Zach McKinstry might be on the cusp of contributing regularly to a deep Dodgers team. 
capable of playing second base, shortstop, and third base, as well as all three outfield positions, Zach McKinstry could fit the mold of Max Muncy or Chris Taylor in a super utility role. However, much of Zach McKinstry's value in 2020 may hinge upon Gavin Lux, who reportedly needs to wait approximately 17 days before being called up so as not to accrue another year of service time. Still, it's worth noting that Zach McKinstry did bat 300 through two levels of the minors last season, 2019, including batting 382 in 26 games at AAA Oklahoma City, or slightly lower, 10 points lower, than Gavin Lux's 392 batting average in 49 games at AAA. Pretty impressive. Plus, Zach McKinstry belted 19 home runs and stole eight bases in 2019. Yet to make his Major League debut, 25-year-old Zach McKinstry is currently on the Dodgers' taxi squad. So hey, taxi, beep beep, meter's running. Zach McKinstry's waiting. Pick him up. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his Hey Taxi commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Since Alex filed that commentary, the Dodgers have indeed called up Zach McKinstry. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about the short season's hopeless arithmetic. One of the core ideas about category management in rotisserie baseball is not to get riled up about slow starts in the ratio categories. A couple of weeks into the season and your team has a ERA approaching 6 and a whip over 160? Not to worry, you've got a thousand more innings to get those decimals all lined up. Except you don't. Those horrendous numbers are my actual team in the Tout American League-only Auction League. Yes, I am dead last by a country mile in the decimals with that 587 ERA and 163 whip. I thought coming into the season that I had a capable, solid staff, four Lima relievers and five pretty decent starters. Except when it comes to the starters, I don't. My five starters, my ace, Lucas Giolito of the White Sox, my number two man, Yunjin Ryu of Toronto, number three, Sean Manaya of Oakland, number four, Gio Gonzalez of the White Sox, and my number five was a bit of a spec pick, Trevor Richards of Tampa. Those five starters have pooled their talents and allowed 44 earned runs in 59 innings, with 99 base runners in that span. That's a combined 671 ERA and 167 whip. Manaya has been the actual ace of my decimals at a sparkling 517 ERA 140 whip. I was further blessed when my fourth reliever, the dominant Josh James, was promoted to take Justin Verlander's spot in the Houston rotation. James has contributed more earned runs, seven, this season than innings, six. He has a 1050 ERA. He's only allowed four hits, two of them home runs, but he's also walked 11 hitters for a 250 whip. My other three relievers, Michael Givens, Alex Colomay, and Aaron Bummer, have been fine, combining for an 061 ERA and 109 whip. Now, as I say, in an ordinary season, I'd just bide my time, wait for my starters to right the ship over the thousand innings that are left. But this COVID season is only 37% of an ordinary season, so instead of another thousand innings to come, I'm looking at maybe 365. And boy, does that matter. 
I did the sad arithmetic and found out just how impactful that inning shortfall can be for anyone looking to fix their decimals. Let's say I can reasonably expect my staff will compile a 450 ERA and 120 whip the rest of the way. If they could do that over those thousand innings, my final ERA would end up around 460, but with only 365 innings left, my final ERA is 476. And believe me, if you're like me, you know I've gained and lost standings positions many times in the past on less than 016 ERA points. And whip, my 120 in a thousand inning scenario would pull my 163 current whip down to 123. But with 365 innings, it's going to be closer to 127. Again, a huge difference in the category. Paradoxically, the gaps are even worse if my team happens to post even better ERA and whip results. For example, if my pitchers compile a 4 ERA and a 116 whip, the short season costs me almost 200 basis points of ERA, 433 instead of 413, and almost 50 basis points of whip, 124 instead of 119. Again, these are huge differences in the ratio categories. And keep in mind, all of this is based on the conjecture that this group of pitching artists can even come up with a 450 ERA and 120 whip the rest of the way. Even if they do, it's just a bummer, not Aaron, that even such a tremendous turnaround by all five of my starters would have its benefits mostly squashed by the sad arithmetic of the COVID season. And yes, the same is true of batting average or on-base percentage. I found that out looking at one of my other teams. And thanks for asking. By the way, I set up a little table showing the effects of the short season in the Baseball HQ article announcing this edition of the HQ Radio podcast. You can check out the table at BaseballHQ.com by clicking on the HQ Radio announcement in the marquee at the top. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Extra Innings Commentator at Baseball HQ Radio. I have my extra innings here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 7th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 22 of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday full edition, Gene McCaffrey, the wise guy of fantasy baseball, a writer at The Athletic, also a very longtime friend of mine and of the show and always a genuine treat in a conversation. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball in the website, our Market Watch commentator this week doing double duty on both sides, Ray Murphy, and our Hey Taxi commentator, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast or an old joke is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second and go to Stitcher, Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It does help us find new listeners, and new listeners keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in seven days with another Friday Full Edition featuring another expert fantasy analyst interview, or maybe two. I'm working on a doubleheader for next week. That's expert interviews, news, and commentary, and it's all coming up again next week on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. Yes, it is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk to you next week. So long.
Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.